This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of change. My name is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. I'm here with Kyla Cheatham. Kyla, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, uh, of course. And uh, we've got a great show for you today. Um, before I jump into the agenda for today's episode, uh, just a real quick reminder that we have new episodes of this show every Wednesday which you can find on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, as well as all of the audio podcast platforms, whichever podcast platform you might listen to podcasts on, you can find us there. So just look up Transformation Ground Control, you'll find us there. This is episode number 77, uh, where we've got three great topics for you today. We're going to start off with uh, some hot topics in the first segment. We'll talk about why Bluetooth has failed. Um, and Bluetooth fails me on a daily basis, so I, I can definitely commiserate with that. Look forward to that part of the conversation. We'll talk about climate change in the global shipping industry, the future of bots in automation, uh, and there will be some Elon Musk and Twitter shout outs mm -hmm. as a result of uh, the discussion being focused on bots. And uh, Elon Musk obviously uh, is triggered by the idea of bots uh, as it relates to Twitter. So we'll, we'll touch on those that topic later in the show. And then we'll also talk about post-tech purchase regret as well in those hot topics. So that'll be the opening segment that we get to here in just a moment. And then later in the show, we are going to have Lisa Pope, who is the CEO, or I'm sorry, she's she's the president. Uh, I have to make sure I get her title right this time. She's the president of Epicor Software. And uh, Epicor Software is one of the leading ERP software providers in the market. And she's going to be on the show, and we are going to discuss the past, present, and future of ERP software. So we're we're going to touch on sort of how ERP software has evolved how businesses have evolved in their needs for ERP systems. And then we'll also talk about the future and sort of where that space is headed, that the ERP software space is headed. So stay tuned for that. Um, she's a great guest and it's her first time on the show. So we're really looking forward to that. And then later in the show, we are going to play a clip of a presentation that I gave at our, reach it, uh, at our recent digital stratosphere event, which was for the Asia Pacific market. Um, but this particular topic is something that's relevant to a global audience. And so we wanted to play you a clip from that regional event. And the topic is going to be on executive alignment. So I give a presentation on executive alignment and how it fits into an organizational change strategy and an overall digital transformation strategy and roadmap. So if that's something that's of interest to you uh, and you're not sure how to get executive alignment, you're not sure if you're aligned as an organization, it's a, it's a good presentation to help you unpack that a bit more. So stay tuned for that. And uh, that's what we've got covered for you today. But before we dive into our guests and our, our some of our meteor topics later in the show. What are some of these hot topics you've got for us, Kyler? Yeah, well, let's start with the Elon Musk Twitter saga. So the backstory, if you don't know it, um, Elon Musk offered a multi-billion dollar deal to buy the majority shares of Twitter. 
Uh, so essentially, that would mean that he owned and operated Twitter, the social media platform um, that's based here in the United States. Um, going through the process, Elon Musk wanted to make sure that the platform was authentic, a freedom of speech opportunity. And by doing that, he wanted to see how many bots platforms or profiles, I should say, uh, are actually on the platform. So they did a data analysis, Twitter did, and said 5% of our profiles are bots. Mm. Elon Musk didn't believe them, did his own data analysis, said they aren't giving him access to all of that information to assess what they essentially sold him. So now he is attempting to back out of the deal. And that's really the um, the the meat of, of this argument is, can he back out of the deal because of that, um, that fake profile ratio? So what I thought we could chat about uh, as a product of this is just the evolution of bots on uh, platforms, whether it's social media or whether it's the use of other automation, and just the overall disruption that Elon Musk has now created in the marketplace around Twitter and the distrust of these bot profiles. And we've all had experience with bot, bot profiles in, in social media, but it's also a, a huge business tool in automation, whether you're um, using it for email marketing, whether you're automating messaging with customers on your website, it has many different uses. So I wanted to get your opinion, Eric, because I feel like you think a lot like Elon Musk as a disruptor in the industry, as someone who's you know not afraid to say this is we shouldn't do it this way or we should be more authentic with our customers, with our users, with our organizations. What are your thoughts on the future of, of bot technology when it comes to communicating throughout organizations, both internally and externally. Yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting you say that about Elon Musk and uh, just sort of a sidebar note that I haven't even shared with you yet, but right before we, we started filming this episode, um, I got an email from Inc. Magazine and, and Inc. Magazine, which you do already know, has, has included us or is including mm -hmm. third stage consulting in the uh, 5,000, the Inc. 5,000, you know, one of the fastest growing companies mm -hmm. in the world. And so we're we're going to be featured in that Inc. 5000 here uh, when that issue comes out later this year. But when they the reason they reached out to me today was because I, they I had done a survey like they surveyed all the CEOs of these companies that are mm -hmm. that made the list of the the fastest growing companies in the world. And um, one of the quotes that they they asked if they could use was me talking about Elon Musk. So I, it's oh, funny wow. you say that because I said that um, you know they ask like who what entrepreneur you most respect yeah. or something like that or, or that you most uh, look up to or whatever I can't remember the exact words but something along those lines and I said it was Elon Musk because he's unfiltered and he is mm -hmm. uh, engaged in some pretty disruptive businesses and some emerging uh, groundbreaking businesses um, so yes I, I so I, I'm somewhat flattered that you would say I think like <laughs> Elon Musk because I admire him a lot um, but back to your question though about um, Bots, though, I think that bots absolutely have a have an important role to play in organizations. I think the problem with Twitter is that it, as you sort of alluded to, is that it creates this inauthentic um, sort of user experience in social media. Social media is probably not the best place to be using bots, although 
we use bots, you know, we, yeah. we use automated software to post some of the stuff that we post very consistently on social media. So I have to be tread lightly here because on one hand, I think it, it can create a lack of authenticity, but if, if you overdo it, but it can also help uh, create more consistency, more efficiency and that sort of thing. So I think finding that right balance is, is important. And there's a lot of industries that have a lot to gain from bots. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've all been on the websites where you could chat with someone, chat with a bot. Mm -hmm. um, I think the technology has a long ways to go to be more mm -hmm. effective because I think we've all been frustrated by trying to chat, some, type something in the chat and the chat doesn't seem to recognize or the, the bot doesn't seem to recognize what you're trying to say. Um, but I think that'll evolve over time. And, and I think certainly when you look at um, like RPA, like robotic process automation mm -hmm. and some of the, um, what's that called? Uh, there's that autom the type of technology where you uh, will take like a manual paper form and it can scan in different fields from that paper form. I can't remember what the mm -hmm. technology is called, um, intelligent automation or something like that, where it, it you like insurance companies or you think about when you apply for a mortgage to buy a house, you fill out all this paper, you know, um, the physical paper, and then it gets scanned into a computer and then a bot will sort of uh, codify all that in, in standard ways. So I think there's a lot of a lot of really groundbreaking efficiencies that can be gained by that technology. But I think the problem with Twitter is that it, like I said, it, it probably takes it a little too far, too much automation, too much of a bot feel. And that's what I think Elon Musk is concerned about is that that's not, you know, creating a sticky environment. Plus, not to mention the fact that Twitter was counting those bots as real users. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the real problem he had is, you know, you look at the numbers and it didn't it didn't add up from that regard. So do you think that he's going to be able to get out of the sale? The well, I think he's already, I, he just recently, I think in the last uh, couple of weeks, terminated it. It said mm -hmm. he's terminated the, the purchase. The question, I think, is whether or not Twitter's board actually sues him. And I think their mm -hmm. discussions or the rumor is that they are considering mm -hmm. filing uh, legal action against him for breach of contract or whatever the, whatever the legal term is. So I think he can, but I just don't know if that'll turn into a legal mess for him or a legal battle, uh, that's still to be determined, I suppose. Absolutely. Well, it's kind of the nature of social media meeting the kind of the compliance or regulation side, which we've seen be a, a topic of conversation on those public platforms and, and banding profiles and monitoring speech, those types of things, which also uses technology like automations and AI to on the back end to flag those types of accounts. So definitely a really interesting balance and, and we'll keep an eye on it. And if you, you talk to Elon, you let us know what his plans are. Well, you know, we have the standing offer uh, right. to Elon Musk to be on the show. I have actually tweeted to him saying, hey, Elon, you should be on the show. I have not heard back yet, um, which I'm totally surprised by because I'm yeah. pretty sure he has to listen to the show. I mean, who, yeah. who wouldn't? 100%. Uh, so, well, we'll see. Well, if anyone has uh, connections with Elon Musk, we'd love to have him on the show. So, uh, absolutely. Be sure absolutely. to message us after the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a good segue into one of the other hot topics where kind of legislation is actually in front of technology, which rarely happens. Um, so, we're talking about climate change and the global shipping industry. And just to give you an idea of what this looks like, this is kind of a battle between the United Nations leg of the shipping industry and climate change legislation, specifically in American port cities, 
for example, LA has a, a zero net admissions legislation by 2030. And as a supply chain expert, I wanted to get your opinion on that because just to lay out some of the barriers to those um, those different technologies when it comes to things like biofuel, we we look at batteries are are not strong enough for heavy shipping tanker boats type of thing. And then we also look at the high demand of biofuels in other industries because of these really green initiatives across the world. Um, and then we also look at when we talk about green hydrogen, which tends to be the, uh, the energy that climate initiatives focus on, the storage of that is very dangerous and it's extremely expensive to produce. So I wanted to just get your feedback on are we as, you know, a global society and our intentions are pure, you know, to save these the planet, is the shipping industry, the supply chain going to be able to keep up with those regulatory barriers? So by saying things like 2030, 2035, uh, is that dangerous and is that potentially going to derail a lot of supply chains and different organizations that rely on those larger global shipping avenues? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's a loaded question, too. Uh, I think you know where my hot buttons and triggers are. Uh, <laughs> and, and I feel like you're doing this intentionally that you're trying to see. You're trying to bait me into I'm trying to have a conversation here. <laughs> Oh. I'm kidding. No, I, I think, you know, I, I didn't know this, uh, this headline, you know, that you just mentioned about the 2030 deadline from the UN. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. So this is new to me. But my knee jerk reaction to that is that a couple things. One is that uh, anytime the government gets ahead of technology and where it's at, that's terrifying to me, uh, because they, they start making these arbitrary rules that may or may not be realistic, um, without necessarily having a clear plan or or understanding of whether or not it's even possible or feasible or how how the supply chain can get to that point in five years it really isn't that much time and that's not much time at all to mm -hmm. expect that the entire supply chain is going to be net neutral in its carbon emissions the other thing i i guess i i think about is sort of an unintended consequence is i think given the fact that you've already had supply chain disruptions you've already mm -hmm. had a pandemic you've already had geopolitical issues with the, the war between russia and ukraine and other global geopolitical tensions that there's already the pendulum sort of swinging back to more of a nationalist sort of let's just make our own stuff sort of mentality which i don't think is good or bad necessarily you might argue it's actually good mm -hmm. um if it if it benefits your home country um so i think what will end up happening when you when you add now this whole un mandate to be net neutral by 2030 i think that's just going to further fuel this um movement to where countries are going to be more self-sufficient, which, you know, I think the pendulum could swing too far that other way, though, to where companies stop relying on international tra trading partners because they don't want to have to deal with these these new rules and regulations. Um, so that's, you know, that's sort of the minds, you know, sort of my knee-jerk reaction. The other part of it, too, comes from, you know, going back to Elon Musk, you look at what he's done for electric vehicles, for example, there was no mandate that said he needed to create electric vehicles. He did it because it was a good business opportunity. He saw a way to make money. Mm -hmm. And he had just so happens that he's having a positive impact on 
uh, climate change. And I think that's, you know, my personal opinion is that's what you should do is let the market get to that point. Because I think we're going there anyway. Everyone's concerned about climate change. Mm -hmm. Even the ones that aren't that concerned or don't believe in it. I think a lot of them even are still wanting to, you know, consume less and, you know, just be more mindful of pollution and that sort of thing. Because uh, we all mm -hmm. have to breathe the same air and everything. So, um, so I think, the you know, there's no need for the government to now start setting mm -hmm. these uh, onerous rules and whatnot to to further fuel what's already in place and what I think the free market is already going to fix as it is. So I tend to be more of a free market type of thinker so that that there is some bias in that response. But those are some of the immediate things that come to mind. Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify a few things. So this legislation by um, 2030 is in um, California, in the in the United States oh, here. Okay. So in those port cities. And so when we talk about the International um, Maritime Organization, the IMO, which is part of the UN, their goal, and it's it's the target is non-binding. And I think that's the argument here is to achieve only 50% reduction in admissions by 2050. And that's their argument is similar to yours. Of let's let the the marketplace, the consumption kind of drive this while still working towards a more clean goal. So I, I think the challenge with that is there are local governments that are very, um, they might be tied to a political affiliation, whatever, right, that are driving the international shipping marketplace. And that, I think, to your point, is dangerous without just having all of the voices in the room that need to understand the implications, not just on a globe or on a local level, but on a global level, right, in, in yeah. making those, those um, specific decisions. Well, in the case of California, then, you know, you look at that and you say, well, you know, for those that aren't from the United States or aren't familiar with the United States politics, uh, California is a very um, liberal state within the 50 United States. It's probably, it's arguably the, the most liberal mm -hmm. state politically. Um, but then you look at other port, you know, and there's a lot of ports, obviously, in California. Yeah. But then you go to the East Coast in like Florida, for example, there's a lot of ports in Florida. And Florida is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. That's a very conservative state for the most part, um, with lesser likelihood of the government saying that there's going to be these sort of climate change rules. So I could see happening in the case of the United States where you have freedom of choice, you know, shipping providers or supply chain managers might be more likely to look at other ports outside of California just to circumvent those rules. So, you know, the government can try all they want. I don't know, you know, they're not going to force something that isn't going to make economic sense. So in other words, if people look at those rules in California and say, oh yeah, that makes total sense. We can still be profitable still follow those rules, it aligns with our social agenda or whatever, then they're going to keep shipping to California. But they, in other cases, they may say that doesn't align with what we think we can make money on or whatever. And they might, you know, look to other ports outside of outside of California. So um, I, I'm a skeptic when it comes to the, the regulations behind that. Absolutely. Um, definitely an interesting conversation, though, of of the global shipping market and the local impact. It doesn't matter really if it's geopolitical, if it is a natural disaster, those types of things can really have an impact on the entire um, the entire world and a lot of rippling impacts on, on industries. So definitely an interesting um, conversation there. Now we can roll back in time and talk a little bit about Bluetooth technology. Um, so Bluetooth technology is super interesting 
to me um, because one, it's such a love-hate relationship, right? It's an, an amazing emerging technology that's been around for a long time. And, uh, but it also sometimes just does not work. It's, you know, it's a lot like cell phone service. The difference with Bluetooth is, and, and this is kind of when I get into public versus private cloud conversation with you when it comes to Bluetooth is there's connectivity issues, there's range issues, which we've all experienced. The setup of device, the switching of devices can be clunky and not a great experience. Um, they travel over unlicensed airways. So a lot of cybersecurity issues, um, a lot of top business people won't use Bluetooth when it comes to things like headphones for privacy concerns, those types of things. Um, and then there's also lots of competition on those unlicensed airways where we're talking about things like baby monitors, um, other pieces um, of technology that utilize those. And then also uh, when it comes down to it, it's not the same as those private airways, which carriers here in the United States like Verizon or owns um, those bigger uh, telecommunication companies. So I wondered the what this got me thinking of, Eric, is, is the cloud and the argument of a public versus private cloud when it comes to one, just overall functionality, but two, security. Do you see any relation between the, the Bluetooth challenges and the use of a public cloud for your um, enterprise systems? Um, sort of, but not really. I mean, I, what I mean by that is when you look at Bluetooth, you know, sort of the unlicensed airwaves and, and some of the disruptions that, in the cybersecurity concerns that come with that, um, it's different in cloud because you're not using sort of shared, I mean, you are using a shared infrastructure in some ways, mm -hmm. um, but the applications themselves, I think a lot of it comes down to the applications themselves. And if you've secured the applications mm -hmm. and the other touch points with those applications, I, I think that's the bigger concern. But I, I don't think that's, there might be more attempts to hack those environments mm -hmm. um, and there's more outside hackers that are trying to get into corporate networks versus trying to hack into my Bluetooth when I'm at the airport or whatever, listening to music. Um, so, so I think it's a little bit different, but I think it's still a valid concern because you are sharing um, IT infrastructure, the physical IT mm -hmm. infrastructure with other organizations. Um, and that makes you a bigger bullseye or that puts a bigger bullseye on you, I suppose. But so it's, it's similar, but different, I'd say, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that there will be a marketplace for this concept of a private cloud as um, enterprises migrate to more of SaaS-based systems? Yes, I do. And I think that's where we're seeing uh, a lot of our clients move. Mm -hmm. that, you know, they may not be fully committed to or comfortable with moving to the public cloud, but they can get comfortable with the idea of having a private cloud. And the other advantage of the private cloud is not only the potential cybersecurity um, um, superiority of, of that model, but also the fact that you have more flexibility to change the software. So in other words, if there's something you don't like about applications that you're using in the cloud, if you have a private cloud, you can do whatever you want with the software. But if you're in a public cloud, you're less likely, especially in a SaaS model where multi-tenant, where you've got multiple companies using the same software, you, you just have less flexibility in that model. So. There's, some, there's a lot of advantage, I think, to the to the private cloud, for sure. Excellent. Well, my last hot topic here is just sharing um, some findings. It's actually a, a Gardner uh, recent survey 
when it comes to uh, tech buying and um, tech-related purchases. So just to give you some background, it was done in November and December of 2021. There was over a thousand respondents in North America, Western Europe, and Asian Pacific. Uh, and then it, it talks about their buying efforts for organizations around um, technology. And it, it specifically talks about the regret of a technology purchase, which I'm, I'm really interested to get your take on. Uh, and this regret happens at the peak for tech buyers that have not started their implement, implementation. So they're holding a lot of this technical debt, if you call it, without actually using the system. Um, and they were significantly frustrated by the buying experience. Um, and specifically, what's interesting to me about this conversation, because we, we talk a lot about how frustrating buying new technology can be for organizations, but the, the issue that they really uncovered here in the research is the actual people that are involved in the buying process, their experience with the new technology is prioritized over the concept of, of creating uh, an enterprise user profile. And that persona, quote unquote, should be what you're meeting the needs for, not the specific people on the project or steering or software selection committee. So I wanted, wanted to get your feedback on how you help clients or through the third stage team create kind of this, um, this persona of the business versus the actual people and their experience with the technology in the room or the decision makers for a software selection process. Yeah. So the, it's a, it's a tricky balancing act because you, you want to understand from a variety of people throughout the organization, how the current processes work and how more importantly, how the processes could work in the future with better technologies. So it's a matter of sort of understanding, but not dwelling on why you do things the way you do today. Um, maybe dwell, if you're going to dwell on something you do today, you want to dwell on the things you do well and the things you want to preserve and maintain in a new system or new technologies. Uh, you don't want to dwell on, you know, the old homegrown system that you've used for 30 years that has all these different keystrokes that you have to go through and different warts and issues you've got to navigate that that's not worth that's not worth dwelling on too much, but you do just need to understand how the processes work and the workflows go. So I think that's a, a balancing act is making sure you're finding the right balance between your current state and future state, as well as uh, navigating the organizational structure of, you know, the boots on the ground that are doing the work, understanding what it is they think they want in, in terms of what they do today, but also what they need to do in the future, but also having that executive sort of direction and alignment, which we'll come mm -hmm. back to that executive alignment thread yeah. later in this show, uh, making sure you've got that alignment and vision and clarity of where you're headed as an organization or where you, you want to be headed as an organization as a result of your your digital strategy. So those are some of the things that come to mind when when I think of that. Yeah, I think this might be, this is a big moment for me. This Man. might be one of the first times that I see the metaverse actually making its way into that enterprise software selection experience because you think about things like creating an a persona or an avatar of you know payroll 
right? And it's not about Susie in payroll. It's about the experience of that person in payroll and being able to implement those data points um, and say, like, this is the best fit, leveraging a, a technology or a virtual reality opportunity, as opposed to just the human idiosyncrasies that comes from actually getting that feedback from an actual human being. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that is. That's that's super interesting. And now now you have me worried that, you know, is the metaverse going to put, you know, make consultants like you and I, is it going to make us obsolete? Is it all going to happen in the universe or in the metaverse? Well, personally, I will never be obsolete. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> but no, I, th I mean, we always know there's a human component to it. And I think that the investment on, you know, speaking from, you know, a self-preservation uh, narrative here is that there will always be an insight and an expertise to having someone come in and set this up for you. There's efficiencies for that. A technology will never be able to acknowledge, you know, perfectly what it means for your business. It will take, it's like a, a dishwasher will never be able to walk into your house and install itself. You know, right. a robot may do it, but that someone had to program that robot and show, you know, the consumer how to use it. So personally, I think there will be more need for that expert advice than less. But of course, you got to take that with a grain of salt because it's my job. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think so. my goal after this episode, after we're done here, I'm going to have to go get a pair of Oculus uh, oh, yeah. virtual reality glasses, get in the metaverse and figure out how to just uh, embed myself in the metaverse so people could find me there too. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's a way to just embrace it and go yeah. all in on that technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're getting some for you, I, yeah. <laughs> I can really help on that front too, just to bring some new ideas to the table. You do have two young kids that might enjoy that too. So that, that oh, or break them immediately. That would be what <laughs> someone who can invent unbreakable sunglasses. You have, you know, a market competitive advantage like no other when it comes to right. wearables. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, very true. Well, good. Well, that's good stuff. We're we're um, actually going to touch on the metaverse uh, mm -hmm. a bit when we talk to Lisa Pope here in a few minutes uh, or in just a, a couple seconds. We're gonna. Uh, bring Lisa onto the show. In fact, we're going to do that right after we take a quick break. Uh, we're going to have Lisa Pope from Epicor Software. She's the president of Epicor Software. She'll be on the show talking about enterprise technology and ERP software, the past, present, and future. Um, and uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation, 
All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 77. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyla Cheatham. We're both with Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And being that we are technology agnostic, uh, speaking of Third Stage Consulting and our next guest, um, we we thought it would be good to have a software vendor on the show, but in a non-commercial sort of way, just to share thoughts on, on where the industry is headed. And the reason I'm so excited to have this guest on the show is because uh, Lisa is someone that I've crossed paths with over the last couple of decades in this industry. And she's worked at a number of different uh, software vendors over the years. So she has a really good sort of global macro perspective of where ERP software and enterprise technology has been, where it's at now and where it's headed in the future. And uh, so even though she's the uh, president of Epicor Software, uh, she's coming at it more from an industry expert, more so than a, a uh, software specific sort of uh, expert, although she is that as well. Um, so I'm excited to have Lisa on the show to talk about the past, present, and future of ERP software and uh, enterprise technology. So uh, Lisa, thanks for being here today. Great. Thanks, Eric. I'm really happy to be part of the show. Yeah, great great to have you for your first time on on the show. And um, you you and I have known each other and crossed paths here the last couple of decades in this industry because yeah. you and I have both been in it for a while. Maybe tell us a little bit before we talk about your current role. Maybe tell us a little bit about sort of your upbringing and how you grew up in this whole ERP software space. Yeah, absolutely. I actually got into it right out of college uh, and started uh, working for a very small software company called Triad Systems, which was focused in the automotive and industrial sector. Uh, and I was actually on pre-sales. So I really learned the product, learned the industry, um, and then sort of evolved up through, through sales and obviously now president. Um, but I have had the opportunity over the last almost 30 years to work for software companies ranging from 250 million to over 20 billion um, in a variety of different, um, you know, industries, markets. And, and one of the, I think the best parts and the experience I'm most happy about and really pleased that I was able to do is, is the global aspect. I've been to over 25 countries, um, you know, in, as part of my business travel. Um, I've sold in those countries, supported in those countries, and really had a chance to get a good awareness of the challenges and the differences that you face, um, obviously not just in all the states in the America, but also as you travel internationally. So it's been uh, been just a great uh, career, and I really love what I do. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's what I think one thing you and I have in common is that uh, we both started in this industry right out of college, and it's really all I know. I don't know about you, but this is all I know. So <laughs> I'm glad you and I can... Uh, commiserate or, or share our, our common experiences. Um, and, and one of the things I really like about your background too, and the reason I thought you'd be so interesting to have on the show among other reasons is because you have that sort of multiple, you have that experience working with multiple different ERP systems. You've, you've kind of grown up, not just working with one specific type of solution, but a number of different ones. Um, just to start, maybe how would you, if you had to sort of summarize how enterprise technology and ERP systems have evolved in all this time that you and I have been doing this, how, how would you sort of summarize that the uh, development in the, the evolution of ERP systems over the last couple decades? Well, I think, I mean, definitely for the better, right? When I started, believe it or not, software was actually tied to the hardware platform. 
So it was actually hardware companies that went out and traditionally sold software that only worked on their platform. So if you picked HP, you got HP software. If you went with NCR, you had their version of a distribution or a manufacturing product. So, um, you know, thank uh, God we moved past that. We got to open systems and, uh, and then really focused in on things that, you know, were desktop heavy, right? So we all went through that smart client era um, where everything was on the desktop, everything was loaded on the desktop, um, lots of IT, lots of administration, um, and difficult, I can definitely tell you from uh, my experience, um, working with global customers there, especially trying to get everybody's version correct, all the challenges that happen with that. And so naturally now, I think the, the best thing about enterprise um, resource planning and really mission critical applications is, is the fact that these applications, now you have a choice, right, to not just run them, on-premise um, with typically a much lighter client than we saw in the old days um, or move the entire infrastructure to the cloud. And so I think, you know, obviously that transition has really enabled business in a whole different way. Um, so really exciting to see that. And like I said, I, I actually remember when we used to do demonstrations hauling the hardware along, you know, with, uh, with the system, right? So you literally had to bring everything to a customer to show them a demo. Right. And, you know, now we uh, we just do it all online or a lot of it. So it's uh, really great to see. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It makes traveling a lot easier, I imagine, um, having yeah. not travel with all that stuff. Um, so what about uh, maybe tell us a little bit about Epicor just to before we sort of dive into some of these other uh, questions I have for you. Tell us a little bit about Epicor for anyone on the line that maybe hasn't heard of Epicor or isn't very familiar with the, with the company and the, and the product. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, it's about a billion dollar software company, and we're very specialized in terms of our focus. Uh, we really sell enterprise solutions into the make, move and sell global economy. So if you're a manufacturer, if you're a distributor, if you're a retailer, uh, basically selling those essential goods um, across that economy, that's really our target space. So. Uh, we do have solutions that cross all three of those those areas. So we may have a distributor who does some light manufacturing. They may also have retail counters. So that whole um, suite of products could sort of be used uh, as we're seeing many of our customers sort of um, transition their businesses from being solely focused maybe on manufacturing or solely focused on distribution and starting to do a little bit of everything. Um, but it's been um, it's a global company. Um, so we are basically all over the world. Our customers range from um, very, you know, small, medium to business sizes, all the way to uh, enterprise accounts, and uh, and really, again, very focused on sort of that global reach. So many of our customers have um, hundreds to thousands of stores or hundreds of locations um, that they're dealing with. You know, how to uh, really enable their solutions across that environment. And we are headquartered out of Austin, Texas. I saw a few people uh, in. Uh, in the chat from uh, from Texas, I'm based here in Dallas as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, and we have we have a lot of people joining here from all over the place. Uh, Chico, Texas. Uh, we have someone uh, juice from from Netherlands. Um, someone from Malta, Manchester, England, India, Germany, um, <laughs> Denver, Colorado, where I'm based. Miami, Spain, um, India, another India, Cairo, Egypt. A lot of a lot of different locations. So thank you everyone for for letting us know where you're joining from today. Um, so what about, let's start with, um, there's a lot of different things you and I can talk about. We, when we were prepping for this, I think we, we sort of, our minds went a million different directions and, and I'll try to focus us, but, uh, curious to hear with the audience, what kind of stuff the audience wants to cover too, but just to start, you know, one of the major themes that, um, you and I talked about in, in preparation for this was, 
um, cloud systems and sort of, uh, you know, how cloud systems have evolved in recent years, what, what options customers have, do they really need to be going to the cloud now? What if they don't want to go to the cloud? Maybe just help us to start, maybe help us un unpack the whole cloud theme or, or premise. You know, what, where do you see, um, how do you, how have you seen cloud systems evolve and how do you see cloud systems evolving now? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. You know, when we first started positioning cloud, I think we saw, especially in some of these mission critical environments that most companies wanted to start with sort of what I would call a point solution, right? They didn't want to move their ERP to the cloud. They tended to start maybe with this, you know, salesforce.com, right? Maybe a service-based app, um, you know, their HR applications. And that was sort of a way for them to test the water. And we're still seeing many accounts, if they're making a cloud transition to start, that's typically what they'll do. Um, once they sort of get comfortable with that, they see the benefit of it, then there's usually a little bit more of an interest of saying, okay, let's now proliferate this and look for other cloud applications that sort of you know, support that portfolio. Um, and then ultimately, I think typically there are a number of catalysts that we see that sort of maybe will have a customer say, okay, cloud now. Um, but I think we have definitely seen a huge transformation, um, even in these key industries that are highly global for customers to choose cloud, uh, especially over the last two years. And we can certainly drill down more into that factors, you know, with the pandemic and other things that I think have led to that. Um, but I do think um, the trend is good. I think overall it does help enable a number of things that I know we'll talk about a little bit later in our uh, conversation. But I also think, you know, choice is still important. We do have many customers who, for whatever reason, it could be highly compliance, could be a very customized application that, you know, really does take um, a lot of processing that they feel is better run on premise. But I think the good news for a lot of our clients today is that there is a choice. Um, so the direction is certainly applications moving there, but uh, customers are able to sort of, you know, decide when the, when the timing is right. Or in many cases, business um, indicates maybe when it's time to consider to move. Right, right. Yeah, makes good sense. And so it's, uh, in other words, it's not an all or nothing, you know, necessary need to double down on cloud right now, you can sort of ease your way into it using point solutions or, or other migration or phasing strategies to get there. Yeah, and I think what we've seen is typically there will be sort of an executive that comes in that feels really strongly. So, you know, we'll see a CFO come in, put in a few point solution applications and then say, hey, I see the benefits with this. We really should consider maybe moving more of our key systems. And, and then we'll often see a selection process start. I know you guys can get involved in those. And, and that's usually a catalyst with some kind of business change. Um, we've also seen companies that are highly acquisitive um, want to have a platform to more easily integrate um, their acquisitions. And so for them, Cloud is an area where they can easily sort of move someone onto the system and then sort of divest or roll them off that system. Um, and then that uh, company can obviously still leverage that same software with the vendor in a new environment. So there are some real benefits that we're seeing from a business perspective that, you know, again, certain executives are sort of looking for cloud to solve some real business challenges. And I think that that is what has probably driven it. The technology is, is great, and I can definitely talk about the advantages on the technology side, but um, even better when you have some real business reasons sort of driving that need for change. Yeah, yeah. What, just out of curiosity, what roughly what percentage of your customers would you say are 
either partially or fully on the cloud now versus the legacy on-prem, you're still trying to sort of convince them to move over. What Do you yeah, have an idea? I would say in terms of our existing install base, probably 70% are either on cloud or in a hybrid where they're running some cloud applications and some on-premise. Um, what's interesting though, I think, is when you look at new systems, so customers that are making that selection process today, it, it's much higher. We're seeing more than 70% of new systems going to the cloud and, uh, and not in a hybrid fashion. So making an all-in cloud decision to say, yes, I'm going to go full ERP and run that in the cloud. So definitely new, I think, you know, people that are selecting and making that investment now are probably more likely to make a cloud decision. And again, the, um, there are certain industries that we see in certain specific cases, some of the larger clients that already have, for example, um, quite a bit of infrastructure set up. They've got all the IT support. They've got the resources. Um, a number of them may choose to still stay on premise or if they are highly regulated and very concerned about some specific industry compliance capability, um, we may see a few of them staying on premise. But I think you know the advances that you're seeing with security in the cloud and so many other things, other benefits for why companies want to consider cloud, I think that's really helping to drive that, those decisions. Right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. We're here with Lisa Pope from Epicor Software talking about the past, present, and future of ERP software and enterprise technology. We're going to continue the conversation, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 77. I'm here with Lisa Pope, president of Epicor Software. We're talking about the past, present, and future of enterprise technology. We've got a question from the audience here. Uh, this is from Juiced on LinkedIn. Um, he's helping me with a nice transition into uh, another topic or sort of building on that topic. But apart from from locations such as cloud, um, what are the major changes to ERP in the last five to 10 years that you've seen both you know, at Epicor and, and with other systems in the marketplace? Yeah, I think um, some really good um, trends. First of all, a lot more ability to run applications mobily. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not about sitting at your desktop. Right. You're not always at your workstation. So the idea that you have more access to information, you know, on your phone or on a tablet or on a device. So I think making applications more mobile is key. Um, and it certainly helps us with new workers coming into the industry. Uh, that, that's an expectation for them. Right. Everything sort of runs on their phone. Um, I think the second thing is really about the user experience as well. Right. The old ERP systems were horrible. Um, you know, I'll occasionally walk into a client that hasn't upgraded and you see some of those old screens and 
you know, what happens is um, the users get very comfortable with that. They know exactly where to tab. They know exactly how to get to what screen. Um, and, and in some ways that, you know, to them is considered to be, you know, productivity. But at the end of the day, once our clients move to that new version and they get to actually experience a whole brand new, you know, very easy to use and the ability for that user to really not have any kind of official training, just have it be intuitive, um, I think is really key. So I think probably for me, the mobile aspect and the fact that um, how the user interacts with the software is now being taken into consideration. You know, even in our development process, we use, um, you know, customer feedback on how things work to get to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make that experience really positive. Um, and then I think the third thing would just be, you know, the ability to really absorb um, on a more modular basis, right? The old ERP systems, you know, you let you put in software for 40 industries, even though you were one, right? So I think a lot of, you know, and certainly Epicor, our focus is it's very specialized. You're downloading software for your vertical, your specific industry. In many cases, there's sub-vertical capability. So you're not having to sort of deploy this entire system that's been written um, which again makes it very hard to implement, uh, very costly to implement, and certainly very difficult uh, to upgrade. So um, really great to see, I think, those trends happening uh, outside of just the, the cloud momentum. Yeah, that last point's a really good one because I think that's something that differentiates uh, companies like Epicor in that you, if you compare Epicor to like an SAP or Oracle where they've built these big, massive, broad systems, and then they try to sort of back into force-fitting it into certain industry situations, that's where a lot of companies get stuck or they just find there's pretty severe limitations in, in that model. Whereas you guys have built the software for specific industries like manufacturing or retail and in the case of different products you have. Um, so I think that's uh, something that I've noticed from Epicor Going back, you know, 10, 15 years, I, I know we've seen Epicor a lot in, in manufacturing and retail in particular. Um, so that's, that's a really interesting, interesting point. Um, I think it really matters on the services side. I mean, that to me, you know, the, the, the concept of implementing software and then your, your provider sort of leaving and then, okay, I'll come back five years later when you're ready to upgrade, right? That sort of cycle. Um, I think was very problematic. I lived through a lot of those cycles in many companies. And I think, again, just getting back to the, the cloud advantage to me, that's probably one of the, the greatest advantages is now customers, they, you know, that asset in this case, it, it's, uh, it's off the balance sheet. But, but when you invest in software as a service, now you're getting the, the, all those new capabilities on a very regular basis. So you're maintaining the level of your, your, you know, your investment you're able to always take advantage of the best and the newest, and it's done in a more rapid pace, you know, through a cloud deployment. And so the old days of sort of having to stop and rethink and implement, do that on these big cycles every five to eight years, you know, I think is really a thing of the past. And so for us, I think that's probably the best is customers can absorb technology literally every time, you know, those up updates happen. And because they're done in small increments, it's not such a rapid change um a radical change for them right they're able to actually take advantage of it and then learn and then move on so i think we're going to see just a whole a lot better um, overall client satisfaction too with the deployment of these enterprise systems because there is sort of a continual improvement versus this big bang um upgrade right right 
Now, here's a, I'm going to combine two questions into one here from the audience. I'll show you one and I'll, I'll read you the other just because the other one's a, a fairly lengthy question, but they're sort of similar themes. But the first is from Kyler, who's our, who's my co-host on, on the Transformation Ground Control podcast. Uh, she says, what are some main considerations organizations should be aware of when migrating to, to a full cloud-based system? And I'll follow it up with another question that's sort of related, but completes the picture here of the question. Uh, but one of the biggest concerns I've been looking into is the fact of making sure the cloud vendor has all the proper configuration settings, et cetera, capabilities built into their system. Too many companies think that moving to the cloud will solve all their problems. What they don't look into is if there's added overhead administration that's needed. Thoughts. So it's yeah. sort of building on this question here from Kyler. Um, really, what what how does how does cloud maybe if I were to paraphrase, how does cloud change an organization? What what do you have to be aware of in terms of changing to adapt to this cloud environment? Yeah, I think that those are great questions. I think one one area that is really important is a cloud system doesn't mean that there isn't still um, IT support on site, right? There's this perception that, oh, the vendor takes care of everything. It's in the cloud. It's magic, right? And the truth mm -hmm. is you still have resources that are available to you that are, know the software, are able to still help and train. And I think that's one of the things we do when we go in and talk to customers about a five-year you know, value proposition of moving to the cloud, I've seen them where people are like, oh, you won't have any IT people. You know, All those costs go away. And that's really not the case, right? You, um, you're not gonna be in the same environment where the IT guy down the, the cube is able to come in and you know, maybe change something for you. But, but that support is still part, obviously, of a, of a go-forward plan. Um, but I do think one of the big challenges a lot of our um, customers that are transitioning off, uh, especially if they were in an environment with a highly customized system, is that they were used to that. So they were very used to being able to, you know, make um, dramatic changes to the code and to the systems and, the, you know, the look and feel. Um, the cloud systems today, obviously, are more configurable. So you don't need to customizing uh, the way you used to. And certainly the settings um, that the, um, the person asked about is key. So making sure your cloud vendor does have sort of those industry templates and the ability for you to see that it's sort of pre-configured for you and then you're able to you know, change switches in the setup and have it automatically sort of adjust. Those are all really important things. So that concept of configuration, not customization. But I think for us, you know, that's the, the big change that we really talk through is making sure the whole concept of cloud is that these should be best practices for your industry. And so um, what we don't want to do is take a cloud system and rewrite it to match your old legacy system. Right. And so this perception of well, how do you make it work the way we work, I think, is, is probably the biggest thing that you go through as part of that, you know, um, business transformation change. Um, and then I think the third thing is just there is a transition period for users. Um, it's like anything, especially for someone who's maybe been at that company for 15 years and is used to using that system. We usually find there is about you know a three to four week period after you go live. We really make sure that that's an area where we sort of surround the client because that's where the um, you know the big concern is is just their ability to sort of absorb these new systems. But then we find very quickly their productivity is significantly faster. So, you know, about a two to three week period where you've got some real challenges just getting through the, uh, um, you know, that that transformational change of how someone actually operates with the with the software. And then we see dramatic change. Um, the other thing that I think is important with cloud is it does really provide some great benefits. Um, you know, I'm going to go back to the, the IT 
um, and the challenge today. But you know, we've all seen all the, the the concerns over security and compliance, and certainly one of the things the cloud does, just because of the infrastructure it's built on. You know, we happen to run on Microsoft Azure, but clearly there are other um, you know uh, providers as well, AWS. And the level of security and you know what they're able to provide if you think about it you know the world-class security that is in that infrastructure now a small company with 10 users gets to take advantage of that they don't have to go hire someone to watch or monitor they don't have to necessarily try to recruit all that staff you know they're getting the advantage of literally best-in-class infrastructure security ability to scale and so again, those economies really pay off, you know, in the long term. Right. Yeah, it's great. Great point. And uh, I'm going to pull up another question here, uh, or more of a comment that sort of dovetails with what you're saying here, Lisa. And that's, you know, there's several initiatives a company has to take to be profitable, business transformation, digital transformation, work workplace transformation, business processes are the key. So I guess that sort of brings up a, another question that I think you, you were sort of touching on, which is how do you... You know, how do you address business processes and how do you ensure that your processes and workflows are actually leveraging the capabilities that you have in the cloud and these new technologies that are constantly evolving? What, how, what are some of the best practices you've seen there? Yeah, and again, I think hopefully, you know, the, um, the software provider, providers that you look for, that that's going to be an important part of, of their value proposition, right? Um, those industry templates and, and knowing that, you are able to to literally you know see those industry capabilities that you may need uh, for your specific sub vertical as part of that sort of software configuration and process um, so we really believe in that that's a big part not just of how we think about designing and developing the software from a business process flow but also when you look to implement right making sure that implementation is also done from you know the value of you know this is the business process we need to put in and this is really what uh, how quickly we need to, to, to get there. So I think, again, that's a big piece and a big advantage of the cloud software these days is you should never have a consultant come in and say, well, how would you like it, right? The software sort of should be easily configured and already sort of pre-mapped for that important sort of vertical and, and process that you're looking for. So big difference in terms of um, implementation and, and what we used to see you know, many years ago. Right, right. What about um, labor and workforce management? That's something that's the top of mind for a lot of organizations with the tight labor market, the challenges finding the right skills and keeping those skills in-house and um, creating a better employee experience. There's a lot of stuff around labor and workforce management that organizations are struggling with. How, how are ERP systems in general, how are they helping address that concern or challenge? Yeah, I, I think it's really important. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to hire... Uh, and get the resources that you need right now. And so you really have to prioritize where you put your focus. So I think there's a couple things. One, I'll, I'll talk about cloud first, but then I'll, I'll just talk about ERP and, and how we view that. But certainly one of the advantages of going to cloud is that it does minimize some of the specialized skills that you may need that are hard to find in some locations, especially around technology. So whether that is, like I said, security, it's implementation expertise, it's finding somebody that knows that particular software that's gonna you know, be there with you for the whole time. All those things sort of drive um, a, a cloud environment because it just means that you will not have to hire those specialized resources, you know, the, 
um, you know, your software provider, your cloud provider um, provides those for you. And then a lot of that capability is built into software. You're not having to duplicate it at your site or location. So we definitely saw during the pandemic um, that huge shift of more clients saying, yeah, I'm going to go to the cloud now because we are having challenges even getting in the office, number one, and number two, getting those specialized resources. And then we talked a little bit about just the evolution of software and retaining people. But, you know, obviously um, people that are happy at work stay with the company. And so that is the whole experience. And if they're using an older antiquated system, it's hard to get their job done. It's hard to get the information they need to do their job. You know, that definitely leads to, you know, workplace dissatisfaction and more people thinking about leaving. So having a newer system, having, you know, that great user experience and having those um, workers that have been there know that you're investing in them and continuing to make their jobs easier, I think is key. And then obviously for us, one of the big areas we're also really working at is, you know, we have been, we have a lot of employees that, you know, have been with the company 20 to 30 years, and that's an incredible luxury. Um, you know, their expertise is phenomenal. They know their industry's cold, um, and, and we're really able to, you know, provide that deep level of industry expertise. But on the flip side, it's also very important that we're constantly thinking about, you know, recruiting. And when we go to look at recruiting, one of the things that we've really realized is, you know, when we look at taking, you know, college graduates and, and even when they're in college, putting them as part of our intern program, you know, they want to be working on software that, you know, helps enable their job. So they want to know that we're on the latest systems and that we've got a great environment for them to sort of build you know, their, um, their career. So it is really important to us, not just on the retention side, but also on the recruiting, I think having sort of that up-to-date modern environment for those workers does definitely help uh, sort of get them, not just to come to your company, but like in our case, we're very focused on taking um, those interns and then moving them into sort of, you know, our business development team, eventually either into sales and marketing, um, or even into our IT or services organization. Again, it does come down to the environment, the culture of the company, but also the systems you use. So I think that's an important piece for us is making sure that you know we provide an environment that is gonna encourage um, that new workforce to come in and wanna stay. Um, and then finally, I think you know one of the big advantages of the ERP systems, and it's not, you know, before we might've done it for cost control reasons, and really what I just see now is it's not about cost, it's just not about getting, being able to get the right resources. So obviously a lot of the applications um, that you know, we provide and, and that you would find in really these digital platforms do enable you to be more productive. So you know, whether you're automating your accounts payable components and you're able to do that now with less staff, if it's warehouse management um, capabilities and you're able to use less, less staff in the warehouse, um, again, less about cost cutting, just more about the fact it's really hard to hire, uh, then obviously these systems can drive dramatic um, improvement and really help you balance that shortage of labor and not have it affect, you know, your top line. Yeah. Yeah. You had a couple of really good points in there. I mean, the, the starting maybe working backwards here from some of the comments you made, um, you know, the whole, the whole definition of scale for a growing organization is to be able to to grow the company without necessarily having to hire one for one to your to your labor force, so that you know that if those efficiency gains they may not reduce in sort of eliminating jobs per se, but as you're growing, you can do more with with the same amount of people. And I think that's that's where we see a lot of our 
our clients going or the, or the way to, to think about that. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, that you bring up that you sort of tying back to a point you made earlier, when you're talking about people that are comfortable with their, their old system. And you mentioned just now in your response about people that are comfortable with their industry, they know their industry really well. You sort of have this dichotomy in the space today where you have people that are maybe highly tenured. They're perfectly comfortable with that old green screen system where you enter the transaction code and you've got all the codes memorized. But then you think about someone coming out of college, they grew up with Instagram and TikTok and all that stuff. <laughs> and that's like a culture shock for someone to come into an organization like that and try and figure out transaction codes and work off this green screen that I would imagine looks pretty foreign to someone who hadn't seen it before. Still looks foreign to me, even though I remember seeing them more commonly in the 90s, it still looks foreign, uh, foreign now. So I think that dichotomy, that balance, you know, sort of leveraging that tribal knowledge, leveraging that skill set that you already have in house, but also recognizing that you've got to create a better employee experience, especially for younger employees. I think that's, uh, that's a big benefit of, of modern ERP systems as well. Absolutely. We, we actually, one of our interns that we had on the marketing side, they did a, you know, they actually did a, a presentation back to the executive team on Epicor's brand perception and what they would do differently or what they could see, you know, mm -hmm. when they went out and looked. And so we got such great recommendations from that exercise, things that we would not have even thought of in terms of, you know, where to place some of our training materials or, you know, they're like, you guys really don't have a presence on YouTube. Why not? Right. Like, I mean, we were on the traditional social, you know, channels, but maybe not leveraging something like that as much as we could have. So I think, um, again, I, you know, I think I, I'm really that the workforce management issue is really near and dear to my heart because I recognize the value of having this, you know, incredible, great industry knowledge. But I think like many companies, you've got a significant number of people that potentially are going to be retiring in 10 to 15 years and really looking at how you're going to develop and rebuild all that great tribal knowledge, I think, is is really important. So it's a very active priority for us and something that we put a lot of thought into it. And, you know, like I said, those um, that newer workforce wants to have mobile apps. They want it to be very intuitive. They want to be able to work from home and work in the office and have a system that supports them doing both. Um, and again, that's part of, you know, the beauty uh, in a lot of cases of cloud because it does just enable that um, that worker to be a little bit more remote, a little bit more flexible in in where they are working from. Right. Actually, that's a perfect segue into a question we have from um, Artsium. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly um, on YouTube. Artsium says, "What are your thoughts on office work versus work from home versus a mix of both strategies?" I've I've covered this in the podcast before, and I've been roasted for my opinions on this. So I, I'm going <laughs> to put yeah, you on the seat <laughs> to flex some of that. <laughs> It's, um, boy, I'll tell you, that's, that really, I think, hit home for us. You know, we, in our company, we sell to really these essential businesses, right? So during the pandemic, they were all open. So, you know, if you think about an Ace hardware store, anything that's basically sold in that store is probably distributed and manufactured by an Epicor client in, in some capacity. And, and, you know, they were open and not just open, but had world, you know, record volume, you know, in, crazy because one of the few places that you could actually go to, I think it became a date night, was to go out to the hardware store. Um, so I think when when we looked at that as a company, we could not really not be out there with them, right? You think about the implementations we were involved in, um, they did not stop. Um, you know, the stores were still open, the volume was increasing, um, and we still had a number of customers that decided to make their decisions to continue on their projects because they felt things maybe were a little slower 
And so they said, hey, let's go ahead and use this time to do the cloud upgrade or you know, move to the next uh, version. So as a result of that, we found ourselves still very actively going out to see clients, still traveling. Um, we had to you know, definitely do some things with shifting territories in some cases so people could drive to a customer versus flying um, and really made those changes as our customers dictated. So we sort of took a customer approach of how virtual we should or shouldn't be versus uh, maybe a corporate uh, perspective. Um, and I think that really paid off. Uh, we certainly know a number of the, the opportunities that we were selected in over our competition was because we our team did show up, um, did walk the floor, did look at their manufacturing, you know, did sit there and really understand the company in person uh, and not try to do everything over video. So despite the fact that we saw great productivity gains by not everyone traveling to every meeting, I think we feel strongly that that interaction um, in our industry with our customers is very, very critical and very important. And if they were open every day, us showing up and being there with them meant a lot and really strengthened that customer bond. So I think it really does depend on who are, who are your clients? What market are you serving? I don't think there's one right answer. Um, and I know for me personally, I had great pride, like many of us who've grown up in sales, of being a road warrior. Right. You, you know, you, you run yourself by how many millions of miles you have on your airline and what level you're at. And so there was this sort of perception of um, traveling everywhere means I'm busy and unproductive. And so right. I know for me and many of um, you know, my leadership team, we did recognize the value of having uninterrupted time to actually get real work done versus always sort of juggling and multitasking. So I do travel quite a bit now. But I'm very focused on the days that I am in my home office with, you know, what I would call sort of those key work streams that need to happen. Or if there is a, a customer um, video or something like that that I need to be on. And then I, you know, travel to go see customers. So if I'm going to be traveling now, I don't want to travel for an internal meeting. Um, I'd much rather travel to, to, to be part of that. So I think you're going to see, I think you're going to continue to see a mix. I will say that workers, though, are getting betting getting back to how you recruit and retain people, there is an expectation now that they don't want to come into the office every day. And so I think for us, we've been more flexible in our policy in terms of, you know, uh, the ability to work from home and the ability to work in the office with an understanding that, you know, it, it, we're not going to really have any positions that would be 100% remote. We still want to encourage people to come into the office for either a team meeting or again, an important client meeting. So based on the role, based on the clients that you're selling to, and I think the industries you know, that you're involved in, I think we'll continue to see a range of people um, you know, and, and feelings. And, and certainly we've seen some companies go all the way back you know, and say, everybody either show up in the office or you're fired. And then we've seen customer you know, clients that have literally said, um, we're, we're not going to have a corporate office anymore, right? We're going 100% virtual. So um, I know for us, um, that touch is really important. And so we are going to stay very connected and, and, and allow some flexibility, but, but knowing that it is important to be back in the office with your colleagues and, and definitely being able to um, service your clients. Yeah, those are all really good points. And as it relates to ERP software in general and its ability to support all three models, really, either the fully in-person, the fully remote and or the hybrid 
um, that gets back to some of the trends you talked about with cloud, mobile, uh, mobile interaction, the overall uh, employee customer experience, all that stuff are, you know, those are all considerations as it, you know, as it relates to um, ERP systems in particular. Um, what about, um, so if we kind of move beyond ERP systems, so in other words, you look at core ERP system that that's meant to integrate an entire organization. You mentioned before how Epicor's, one of Epicor's differences is that it focuses on and builds software specific for specific industries versus trying to be everything to everyone. But still, even in that model, there's going to be limitations, right? There's only so much capability you can provide in one single system. So what what do you see in terms of uh, options that organizations have? So, you know, anything beyond ERP that they might need to complete their digital transformation roadmap? Yeah, I think there's a number of systems that have sort of evolved recently that have become, you know, really key. And and in some cases, they are, uh, they're still sold through, you know, the ERP provider, but, but they can also sort of run in that standalone mode, right, where a, a company may say, I'll keep my existing ERP, maybe, you know, not do the upgrade at this point and move it to the cloud or, or go on a new selection, but I'm going to go ahead and enhance it with, you know, with a, a different product and, and maybe get that you know faster return uh, from a business benefit. I think one of the areas that we've seen probably the most interest in uh, recently is is what we call CPQ, which is that configure price and quoting. Um, and again, probably because of the industries we serve. But I think one of the things that you know that customers like now is you know the Amazon experience where they can get on, look at something, you know, visualize it in their house. In many cases, if you're buying a rug, let me see what it looks like in my room. There's, you know, a little picture where you are able to do that. Um, and then being able to, you know, make that purchase and, and feel like the whole thing is done. And so even if you're a manufacturer, I'll take a boat manufacturer, um, you know, that ability for a customer um, to, to log on to a system, look at a series of boats that they may be interested in, configure the boat that they would actually like with all the options and the color, um, be able to look at it and see the size, get the pricing for that, order it, um, but maybe even taking it a step further and then visualizing that boat in their existing dock, right? Big mm -hmm. mistake that many people make, they buy a boat that's too big for the dock that they may have or won't work, you know, in terms of the angle of pulling the boat in. And so, you know, one of the things we've seen with, you know, CPQ especially is that next level of, you know, again, for manufacturing, not just doing a simple configuration and a price and a quote, but actually being able to visualize it in the context of other parameters. So that's probably for us one of the, the, the fastest selling um, sort of what I would call point solutions or strategic solutions uh, that can be used sort of independent of you know, your ERP base. And so again, very fast sort of time to value. And again, because it's sort of a customer facing app in this case, you know, the, the direct manufacturer has the ability to actually link to a consumer directly, you know, and even if that order ultimately gets credited through a dealer, the ability for the manufacturer to retain that sort of relationship and also see that the customer is interested in this. They, you know, they, they start to get information on that prospective client, et cetera. So that's one example. Um, there's certainly a number of other ones. We see a lot of interest in service specific uh, modules right now as well. But I think those are other great examples of where a company can, can go ahead and sort of um, make a decision to change a business process that's very critical 
and again in this case very customer focused um, without necessarily making a huge switch to their entire ERP system. Right. Yeah. So there's uh, you know, I think what you're saying there is it, it's not a all or nothing proposition. You know, I think a lot of times organizations think either I'm going to go with a single ERP system or I'm going to go with the best of breed approach where I've got, you know, 15 different systems. But what you're saying is you could sort of do more of a hybrid where you've got a core ERP system that does 80% of what you need it to do. And then maybe you have, you know, for the other 20%, you've got these bolt-ons for CPQ or, uh, you know, CRM, HR tech, whatever, you know, whatever the missing link might be. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, in a perfect world, you're going to have, you know, your core ER system, if, especially if it's in the cloud, then that integration is a lot easier because there's a lot more standard interfaces that are being used. So I think the big thing, again, it gets to is, you know, maybe you're, you've got a, a really solid relationship with your ERP system, but there may be another piece of functionality that you're interested in and the ability for you to be able to still go ahead and purchase that and have it easily integrate, I think is another big advantage and something that, you know, is part of sort of, I know we're going to talk about more about industry 4.0, but this ability to quickly integrate and have sort of a seamless enterprise, not just within your four walls, but outside as well, um, I think is key. And it does, like I said, extend your ERP in many cases because um, it gives you the ability to, to add those uh, products on if for any reason you, you're not in a mode uh, in the immediate future where, you know, you're going to make that decision to switch. Yeah. We're here with Lisa Pope from Epicor Software talking about the past, present, and future of ERP software and enterprise technology. We're going to continue the conversation, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 77. I'm here with Lisa Pope, president of Epicor Software. We're talking about the past, present, and future of enterprise technology. You mentioned uh, Industry 4.0. Um, I'm going to bring up a question from the audience here from Kyler, um, who says, can you talk about, I'm, I'm going to maybe broaden this question a little bit, and we could probably spend an hour just on this one question, but we'll, we'll try to summarize it here. But can you talk about some emerging tech in relationship with Epicor? So in other words, with your with where you see Epicor and other ERP vendors going in general, do you see them leveraging artificial intelligence, predictive analytics, metaverse, virtual reality, augmented reality? This will sort of lead us into industry 4.0 as well. You know, what are some of the, you know, emerging tech, you know, outside of cloud? I know we keep coming back to this theme of what else, you know, what else is happening in the future? Else where, where else are we headed? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think Industry 4.0, I mean, obviously is important uh, to the industry in terms of really being that next generation um, in terms of that fourth industrial revolution. And there are a number of key pieces of technology that I think 
are key to that, that sort of will help many manufacturers really sort of, you know, uplift their environment and, and get some, you know, huge digital transformation and business benefit. We spent a lot of time talking about cloud computing, and that's clearly one of the foundations of Industry 4.0. And I think because it enables the other technologies to facilitate and work easier. So that is one of our recommendations is sort of if you're on this path for digital transformation, step one is move to the cloud. So that's, you know, like that's sort of the, if you do that, then the rest of it becomes a lot easier. Um, but there are certainly other big pieces of this that are key. Um, one is certainly big data. That's a big element of industry 4.0 and the ability to really, um, you know, we've been collecting transactional data and all these systems, the ability to really leverage that data um, and make decisions and, and use it for analytical purposes, predictive analytics, um, being able to know when a machine is going to fail before it fails, you know, is one example. Um, and I think for us, certainly even at Epicor, that's really our next evolution is when we look beyond our ERP systems, we have a number of applications now that focus in on providing data insights, data analytics, and really helping our customers get more information prior to, you know, to them thinking about it, right? So that, that predictive uh, component. Um, the other big area that we're seeing uh, that we think is really key is just the whole proliferation of IoT and the Internet of Things. And again, if you think about how that can be leveraged in manufacturing, we've had customers that are supplying, um, you know, medical um, things that have to be you know, stored at a certain temperature, um, having devices that can actually track the temperatures in that warehouse or in that bin or along the entire supply chain, knowing if for, if for any reason that temperature has um has dropped uh, beyond the point that it should have that, you know, that that whole batch, for example, in this case is is no longer good. So there are a lot of very, very specific uses that can be used um, and I think benefit for for many companies. So those are probably the two the, the most the two that I see being deployed the most right now and leveraged the most um, is really Internet of Things, IoT and the big data. Um, we're, we're definitely seeing more focus around some of the virtual reality and, you know, the artificial intelligence, you know, it, even in our software product now, we have sort of an AI capability that allows you to ask questions and, and get answers, et cetera. But I think, um, you know, those are like evolutions that we're going to continue to see more and more companies start to deploy. But I do think, you know, what Industry 4.0 is at least given everyone is a very good roadmap to make those digital transformation changes and really allow a company to, you know, move to that next level um, and do it in a fairly, you know, predictable fashion because there are specific, you know, use cases for each of these sort of industry uh, trends that are happening that, you know, that they can sort of learn from. And that's, you know, again, a big area that we try to do with our clients is make sure that we're working with them on those projects, leveraging those use cases and then sharing them so that other manufacturers can see, you know, how these things are being deployed in a real world environment, you know, not just uh, from the perspective of, you know, um, uh, you know, the internet and it telling you what to do. Right, right. Yeah, I, um, yesterday I, I recorded a batch of YouTube videos for my YouTube channel. One of the things I covered, one of the topics or one of the videos was metaverse. And so I went down a rabbit hole the last couple of weeks, just sort of researching the metaverse or where it's, where it's come, how it's evolved, where it's headed. So I guess, you know, what you mentioned the boat example earlier, the boat that doesn't fit in the dock. And I can't help but wonder someday, could I 
design a boat in the metaverse, go test out the boat in the metaverse, see if it fits in my dock in the metaverse, take it out for a ride, see how it looks and feels, and then order a product, which would then integrate into my ERP system directly. Do you you see that ever (laughs) happening, or is that am I too much of a child of the 80s that's uh, dreaming of Uh, You know, I I think it could be. I really, um, you know, I was surprised how quickly... um, we, we made an acquisition of a product called KB Max, which is now our CPQ product. And one of the big advantages it did have beyond just, you know, all the real cool customization piece and seeing the boat was the ability to pick it up and, and move it and, and actually see it in your environment. And whether it was a boat or, you know, it's, it's windows for your house, um, it's a shed you're building in the backyard, you know, whatever it is for you to be able to visualize how something looks. Um, I think is key. So, you know, the next step to actually allow you to be able to potentially drive it, I'm sure uh, will be right around the corner. But there's so many, I think, business applications and uses now that um, are starting to emerge that really are making a difference. And I think, again, I think we've seen a really convergence of industries. We haven't talked a lot about that, but, you know, the, the manufacturer that used to just make things I think the whole environment has really shifted where everybody's more consumer focused, right? So because of that, they wanna know who their customers are, they wanna have some interaction with them. And so the ability for our customers to sort of, you know, not view ERP as the back office system, but really realize that this is an extension of how you interact, not just with your customers, but all your suppliers. And it is really uh, a supply chain based, you know, productivity tool, I think is, is kind of where we're headed. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Good stuff. That makes sense. Um, so I guess just to wrap up the conversation and bring it all first full circle, um, what advice would you give to an organization that's about to embark on an ERP initiative or just some sort of systems initiative systems, um, modernization initiative, what sort of starting advice would you give them? How do they get started on the journey? How do they take all the stuff we've talked about? How do, how do they take that all into consideration and make it meaningful for their digital strategy and roadmap? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think first it does start with sort of an executive sponsor in that account, right? I've seen a lot of projects start and potentially stop based on whether or not there is executive support. So I think making sure that the project is, you know, has got great business value. And I know there are a number of opportunities uh, Epicor provides a capability to come in and sort of help assess. Um, I know there are many software um, consulting firms as well that will do that, but I think making sure that there's a solid business value plan around it and it's not just a technology project is key because then, um, first of all, we've just seen those projects go way smoother. Uh, we've also seen that you know you, you tend to get just the results are significantly better because the focus and the priorities are there. Um, and I think that's the next piece of this is really making sure that you've got the people in process internally that can assist you. Um, because I think one of the things that we see is, you know, it can't be someone's night job, right? When you start on a project like this, you really do need to have a dedicated team that's going to sort of help shepherd um, the project through the organization and really help drive those results. Um, and then I do think it does make sense in a lot of cases to you know, have some outside assistance in terms of either helping you through that process um, and making sure that, you know, you're considering your your options and that you're really weighing the pros and cons, Um, especially, you know, if you are in a situation where you're not happy with the existing solution. I think it's worth the time and energy to 
to take a step back and say, okay, where do we want to go from here? What does it make sense for us to do? Um, and then I think just the plan is really key. I think, you know, the good news is the old ERP implementations of 18 to 24 months that then end up becoming three years are really, you know, they're out of the norm for now. We're seeing um, clients want to do much more of a rapid implementation style where um, they work on getting the core business processes moved and then, you know, over time may add uh, additional capability. But I think really making sure that you have a plan for uh, so that you don't get that sort of ERP fatigue, right, over a long period of time. So I think people are key, executive sponsor, definitely the process. And then just, as I said, making sure that, that you, you look at this as, as a rapid plan to that, that business benefit. So it doesn't just become a very laborious, long, um, you know, technology project. Right. It's just a money pit that doesn't deliver any value. I think those days are... Long gone. Rear view yeah. mirror. Yeah. Companies just don't have that sort of risk tolerance anymore. And they're, they're getting a lot yeah. smarter about how they deploy technology. Um, well, good. Well, how, how do you, uh, if I'm interested in Epicor, I don't know much about it, but I want to learn more. How do I, what's the best way for me to learn more about Epicor? What, yeah, definitely you? our website, epicor.com. You can see the key verticals that we specialize in. Um, you know, we have uh, chat capabilities. So if you're interested, there's someone available to you immediately. Um, for any questions that you may have. But yeah, we welcome the opportunity certainly to talk to anyone uh, in our key industries and see if there's anything we can do to help. And I've really enjoyed being able to just reach out and talk to so many of your listeners. Um, I'm really passionate about what we do. And I really do believe that, you know, the transformation we've seen in the last few years is, I mean, it's in my career, it's probably the most significant in terms of you know, the business value that these systems are providing. So it's a great time, uh, certainly to be in our space. All right. Thanks, Lisa. That was a great conversation. Really appreciate having you on the show. Loved having you as a first time guest here. A lot of good stuff we covered there. In fact, there's a few trends that we want to unpack and touch on in some more detail. So we'll get to that here in just a moment. But in the meantime, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 77. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just had Lisa Pope on the show from Epicor Software. She talked about some of the macro trends and sort of uh, the history of the enterprise tech space and where it's headed, all that good stuff. What, what were some of your takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, I mean, what a, what a great conversation. It's great to see two people that really kind of grew up in the industry talk about how it's evolved. 
Um, and it's also very uh, refreshing to hear a software vendor say things like, you know, a, a hybrid cloud is an option or kind of easing into the cloud migration or an upgrade, if you will, um, is something that, that can be a strategic business decision, which I think a lot of times isn't always so authentic in that sales conversation. Uh, but I think it, it was great to hear that from her, certainly, uh, and, and hearing that. So I want to ask you a few questions. You know me, I always like to uh, write down some questions to follow up. But when we are talking about kind of that upgrade cycle that you guys had mentioned when it comes to moving from an on-prem solution to a cloud solution or those types of things, it sounds like the integration of really the vendor partnership in that used to be kind of you sell the software and then kind of back off and then come back to it when um, they're ready to upgrade or the organization is ready to upgrade. But it sounds like the cloud really has created a more long term partnership structure. Is that uh, is that correct or accurate? It is. And what we're seeing is that because you're paying for ongoing subscriptions, you're obviously you know, creating a more sticky situation or a sticky environment between software vendor and customer, because now you, your you know, all your data and your workflows and your software is, is in the cloud with a specific vendor. So you're paying money that for usage of the software and continuous upgrades of the software. So it does, in my opinion, create sort of a stickiness and uh, a higher switching cost for people that might eventually want to switch out of that ERP system, that cloud system, it's mm -hmm. going to be harder in the future, I think, to make that change potentially, especially if the software doesn't evolve the way you need it to, or if your business evolves in a way that diverges with what the software can do, there is going to be time where organizations need to move away from that software vendor and that migration is going to become mm -hmm. more difficult. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. I think, yes, it creates a longer-term partnership, but it could create a unhealthy partnership that's hard to get out of uh, if, you find that those switching costs become too high in the future. Absolutely. And, and that's a good segue into that next topic of that internal IT need and kind of myth, myth busting the idea that moving to a cloud solution kind of eliminates the IT skill sets or competencies that you really need to maintain and support these systems, uh, which I think is important to consider. Uh, and something that a lot of times a, a cloud perception can uh, misalign the need for that support structure and infrastructure within an organization. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I that agree. kind of reminds me of you talking to Ridwan about the evolving roles of that CIO and making sure that CIO continues to understand the need for the infrastructure. It might look different, but still needing that in-house support when it comes to switching or migrating to the cloud. Yeah. Yeah. That is very similarity. There's a lot of commonality there for sure. I thought it was really interesting too, how she kind of, uh, she, I wrote down how to make it, how to make it work, how we work type of thing. Right. Um, because we go in and assess needs of an organization, right. And then we try and find the best solution for whatever their goals and objection objectives and needs are. And I, I think it's an interesting perspective that you still have to consider the software functions a couple ways. Um, and then you're, you, there will be some compromise when it comes to what exactly the needs are of the business and an off the shelf software. 
so it was kind of interesting to hear that from the vendor perspective, uh, as opposed to us, where we really focus on the business needs. Not at all that uh, Lisa and team don't. But for us, that's the number one priority. And of course, for them, the functioning of their software and the success of their customers, of course, is a, a priority. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like you've got to marry the two schools mm -hmm. of thought. You know, you've got the school of thought that I think Lisa was sort of advocating, which is software has pre-built pre-configurations, industry best practices, all that good stuff that can inform and educate on how you could be doing business, but it may not align and it's not going to align 100% with what, what it is you need. So that, that leads to the other school of thought, which is you let the processes drive what the technology mm -hmm. does. And you're going to have different answers for different parts of your business or different business processes. So the more critical business processes might be driven more from the business first and the way you operate first, um, but other more commodity or vanilla based processes within your organization that aren't really a source of competitive advantage. Those would be examples or good candidates for processes that you let the software sort of dictate how you do business. And so, um, you know, I, one thing I, do, I don't do in interviews is I, I try not to argue with the guests. I'm not here to tell them they're right or wrong. And in fact, people have roasted me for this in the past, um, mm -hmm. especially with, uh, interestingly enough, uh, Walker Reynolds, when he was on a few weeks ago, um, and we talked about Industry 4.0, he had a couple, I do remember a couple of things that he said that I didn't quite totally agree with, but I got uh -huh. roasted for like, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you argue with him? Why didn't you correct him? And I'm like, I'm not here to correct anyone, but um, but that is one that, you know, whereas, you know, Lisa and I might see the world a little bit differently, which actually doesn't surprise me because most software vendors think that way. They think our software has best practices and we're bringing these competencies to the table. And there's some truth to that, but that's only part of the truth. The other part of the truth is, you know, how do you take your business processes and, and let those drive certain parts of your, your transformation? Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you didn't argue with Lisa because, you know, she seems like she could really go toe to toe with you. So I would be, you know, scared. Yes. For you. No. <laughs> yeah, she, she um, might out, out debate me for sure. Yeah, she's, right. No, no, very, no. She's very poised and very logical. And, yes. uh, yeah. She's very impressive. And of course, uh, we, I think the point that everyone makes there is the different perspectives when it comes to uh, business advisory, which you and Third State third stage brings to the table and then also uh, the vendor because it, that's what they need to do is say like this is this is how our software works right because the last thing they need to do is is say like it works this way and then that's not what um, actually happens and that's where we get into our roles as expert witnesses right and saying you know what should have gone and nobody wants that um, the organization doesn't want that we might want that because it's a great you know line of revenue for us <laughs> but right. um, but it's it's just it's a great it's a great kind of message that there's there's perspectives for everyone at the table and the more you evaluate here and are mindful of all of the different messages and understand those narratives of everyone that's trying to help with this you know very big process so definitely yeah. interesting uh, I I also liked that she mentioned kind of that three to four week period that uh, you uh, that you actually they stay in touch it almost reminded me of like a surgery or recovery period um, where you know you are kind of um, kind of managing to that new change within your organization and I was wondering what it, what typically is third stage's role in that post implementation um, period when it comes to helping the vendor support 
the system and then helping the organization kind of figure out the system. I know we focus a lot on user adoption and those types of things, but I thought I might ask you to expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, it depends on what, how the initial implementation went. Um, oftentimes we have clients that hire us after an implementation and say, hey, we mm -hmm. just implemented technology X, whatever it is, and it didn't go well, it was a total failure, we need your help. In those cases, you're coming in more to stabilize and remediate a problem and helping you know, sort of get the project or the implementation out of a ditch. That's not at all ideal, but it's something, I hate to say it, but we're good at it just because we have so many people that, that make that mistake and then hire us to come clean mm -hmm. it up. Um, the ideal scenario, though, is that you do the implementation well, not perfectly, but you do it well, and you have a fairly successful, not a perfect, but fairly successful or a, a relatively successful uh, go-live and now your focus isn't so much on fixing a problem and digging the project out of a ditch, but rather you're focused on maximizing the business value that you get out of the, the project. If you think about all the money and time that's spent on these transformations, uh, some companies spent years and millions of dollars on their implementation only to just let it fizzle away or just to totally underwhelm in terms of business value at the time you go live. That incremental uh, efforts and cost to maximize business value after go live has a huge ROI. So it's like you're you're taking the one thing that arguably delivers the most ROI of anything you could possibly do mm -hmm. in a digital transformation, and a lot of companies just ignore it because they just want to be done with it. They're just like, let's just go live and let's move on with our lives. Um, so to answer your question, though, what what we do in those cases where it's not digging out of the ditch, it's not project remediation, it's more help us get more value out of it. Here's where you start to um, identify and prioritize where the obstacles to business value are. And typically they're, it's pretty low hanging fruit. There's usually a ton of low hanging fruit of stuff you can do to really optimize and maximize the value you get from your investment that you just made. And so things like, uh, end user refresher training or, uh, re rethinking or tweaking certain business processes that maybe aren't working as well as you thought they would, you go in and you fix just that part of the, the transformation. Mm -hmm. You're not redoing the whole thing. You're just fixing certain things that are more you know, more focused. Um, those are a couple examples. A lot of times there's certain modules that weren't deployed right, or you didn't configure it right, or perhaps you need to add some customization or a third party bolt on to really get the most value out of it. So you really have to look at all the problem areas, which usually there's a sort of a laundry list of things that you could have done better, or that you could be doing better post implementation, then you prioritize those based on the level of effort versus the, the payoff you get from it. And then you say, let's go tackle these 10 or 20 things or whatever it is. And let's get the most value out of it. So that whole process is what we help clients through uh, post implementation. But again, it just depends on if they're sort of yeah. in that, you know, let's get more value out of it. Or are we trying to just, let's just survive. Let's, you know, we can't ship product because it was such a disaster. Come in and help mm -hmm. us. Those are two totally different scenarios, but we're used to seeing both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that That is really interesting, that maximization of value. I think it also goes with a lot of um, what Lisa was talking about, about their kind of customer approach when it came to all your questions about their, uh, or the audience questions too, about um, servicing customers in a specifically a manufacturing environment, right? Because you can't do a ton of that remotely. Uh, and if you need to actually go in and evaluate that uh, after the pandemic hit, uh, what that looks like, because I, I think a customer by customer 
approach is so important. And I'm glad that, you know, they have the autonomy to do that because a lot of times bigger companies don't, you know, there is a standardization to that um, as opposed to the case by case approach. Yeah. I also wanted to um, ask you about uh, her mention of recruiting and kind of the workforce management side, because I thought her perspective was really interesting in the fact of, of building up a culture from the younger workforce. And we we do you do a lot of lectures um, for higher education and academia. Um, I wonder what your take is on bigger software companies bringing on younger members and almost this standardization of needing to operate in a more technical driven user environment uh, for software vendors specifically. They're not always known for having the most intuitive um, user environment um, because they are so large. So what what's your feedback on that? Well, I think that's where you're seeing the advantage of best of breed point solutions. Mm -hmm. She talked a little bit about that too. Um, you know, I think she was talking about the CPQ uh, mm -hmm. example, the configure price quote is sort of a, a solution that is very targeted to one workflow, one part of a business, and it just does that one thing really well. And so that can create a better user experience in, on one hand. On the other hand, it, it sort of complicates things because now you've got multiple systems you might have to interact with. Uh, but if the technology and the tools work better, it might be better to have more tools that are more aligned with what you need versus just having one tool that, you know, all you've got is a hammer and you're trying to build a house with a hammer. Um, be nice to have some other tools if you're building a house. So um, you, you have to find that right balance for for what it is you're, you're trying to accomplish there. But I think in general, though, even even the big, massive, bloated ERP systems of, of the past are still um, or of, of the more recent past are still better than some of those really old ERP systems that are on the old green screens and mainframes and all that stuff. That to me is just total culture shock to, you know, a millennial or a, um, whatever the generation, what's the generation younger than you millennials? Gen is it? Z. Gen Z. Yeah. yeah. Gen Z. I can't even imagine them even understand. It'd be like learning a foreign language, mm -hmm. um, to learn how to, um, operate a, an AS 400 based system or whatever. So, yeah, I think that's a, a an important consideration for sure. And it was, it was interesting too, because she, uh, when we were prepping for the interview prior to the, the mm -hmm. podcast, um, that was one of the things she really wanted to talk about. Like she had a couple things that was like, Hey, can we talk about this? And that was, that was one of them she wanted to make sure we touched on. That's excellent. Yeah. I, I feel like the younger workforce for me is just, it's such a mystery at this point. It's kind of, you know, how do you do it? How do you do it in an in-person environment? How do you do it in a hybrid work environment? How do you do it in a technology cultural environment while still honoring that tribal knowledge that a lot of your may, maybe older employees may have? Uh, mm -hmm. It's a really interesting time to be a business leader when it comes to the technical space. Right. Well, that was such a, a great um, conversation. You know, I, I think the metaverse was the one thing that I think is is definitely interesting to hear and um, hearing that, you know, your video is coming out on it too, which I'm, I'm glad you finally embraced that after me talking about it, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, but it's, it's a very interesting um, concept when it comes to what a software vendor thinks that will look like. And then lastly, the convergence of industries, I think was really interesting when it comes to 
the metaverse and understanding specifically from a manufacturing standpoint, you might have just been able to manufacture this one thing in a, you know, a, a physical realm, if you will. But in the metaverse, you, you might be able to have an entirely new product line, which is uh, a very interesting idea uh, and, you know, is going to call for a lot of flexibility. Uh, and I think the, the one thing that she had given that piece of advice at the end was that executive support and alignment, which is what your keynote um, was on from our, our APAC focused digital stratosphere. So it's such a good segue into the rest of the episode. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we'll, uh, we're going to play this clip of a presentation I gave at that event um, at the, the digital stratosphere for Asia Pacific uh, just earlier this year, a few weeks ago. And uh, we're going to play that clip, and it's it's really a good discussion about you know why executive alignment is so important, how to detect whether or not your executive team is actually aligned and rowing in the same direction, and how to take their vision. When I say they, I mean the executives take the executive vision for the organization as a whole, and how to translate that into a digital strategy and a digital transformation plan that aligns with that strategy. So that's what we'll talk about here. I'm going to play that clip here, but first we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 77. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out there, subscribe, like us, and uh, give us a comment if you wouldn't mind to a review on the podcast platforms you're, you're listening on. Um, our next segment here is on executive alignment. This is actually a clip from our Digital Stratosphere online event uh, for the Asia Pacific market that we hosted just a few weeks ago. And this is a presentation I gave as a keynote in that session about how to get executive alignment and how to know if you 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 have it or if you need work on executive alignment and how to translate that executive alignment into a digital strategy that's aligned with your overall goals and objectives. So let's play you the clip and then we'll we'll uh, we'll come back and uh, unpack some of the the concepts here. But let's roll the clip of uh, my keynote on executive alignment. And so one of the the things that we look at when we're we're uh, chatting with with clients and working with clients is ensuring that we have uh, clarity on what the roadmap is and how we're going to help clients reach their third stages of success. And much like a rocket launch, which is where the analogy for, for third stage came from, uh, there are three stages to a rocket launch. And that's really much of how we view digital transformations. And so when you look at a rocket launch that has three stages, the first two stages are what get it up into space. And then the third stage final launch is sort of the boost that gets it up into its final height and speed in orbit. 
that's a lot like digital transformation because transformations are constantly fighting gravity and inertia and trying to gather momentum and trying to change the status quo. And there's a lot of risk. It's fraught with risk and most organizations fail to reach that third stage of success. And so really what our goal is and what our job is when we're working with clients and when we're having conversations like what we're having today with, with organizations throughout the world is we're trying to figure out how do we help this particular client reach that third stage of success? What is it that is going to align best with their strategy and their overall organizational needs? And that's really the, the challenge and, the, and the, um, the, the focus of helping clients reach that third stage of success. And so we as a company, not only are named after that rocket launch analogy, but there's a few other things that are important about who we are as an organization and, and as a team. And certainly the three of us and the four of us that you hear uh, speak today with you during this workshop are going to find that um, we're all 100% technology agnostic. So we're not affiliated with any software vendors. We don't sell software. We don't specialize in one type of technology or system or one, one vendor. Instead, we've focus on ensuring that we help clients select and implement whatever, whatever sort of technology from whatever vendors might make the most sense for, for an organization. And the other thing about the company that makes us unique is that we do view these projects as business transformations more so than technical initiatives. The technology is certainly very important, but the even more important components of transformation are going to be things like the change management, the people side of the equation, the process management, process reengineering, as well as the, the overall uh, program management and, and business goals and objectives. Um, so th those are some of the challenges that are some of the, the aspects of uh, the company um, that are important to note. And in terms of understanding before we get into executive alignment, uh, one of the first things we need to understand is what exactly is digital transformation. And transformation means a lot of different things. There's a lot of different uh, buzzwords out there in the marketplace, um, different types of technologies that can be deployed as part of a transformation. And so ensuring that we have that, that sort of, uh, that sort of focus on, on what type of technology it is we're trying to deploy is very important. So for example, a lot of times organizations think that digital transformation must just mean ERP implementation. Some might think it's uh, Internet of Things. Some might think it's CRM or human capital management or artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, industry 4.0, manufacturing execution systems. There's a lot of different technologies out there, and it's easy to get caught in the trap of thinking that any one of those technologies is a sort of silver bullet to a transformation. And even more importantly, it's too common that we find that organizations tend to think that it's the technology itself that constitutes a digital transformation. But in reality, digital transformation is driven by whatever technology or technologies make the most sense for an organization. And it's also made up of, or should be comprised of the people, the process and the strategic alignment uh, aspects of transformation. So it's really important for us first to understand what transformation means to our organizations. And, and I would say, some of our more successful clients are the ones that are open-minded to really trying to, to view the technology landscape as a sort of a, a puzzle. There's a bunch of pieces to the puzzle out in the marketplace, and we need to figure out which pieces of the puzzle make the most sense for our organization and best align with our overall corporate goals and objectives and strategies. And that's what we, we want to talk about here today is how do we get that further alignment and further clarity beyond just defining what digital transformation is? How do we define the different components of that? Uh, as well. 
And please, as, as I'm going through uh, the, the presentation, please feel free to drop in any questions or comments in the chats and, and Kyler uh, can certainly stop me at any point along the way. And we'll leave some time for questions at the end as well, but uh, please don't be afraid to interrupt me or to drop questions in the chat and we can get to those as we go here. So some of the uh, top challenges that organizations face, and this is actually from our uh, 2023 digital transformation report, which we are releasing this week. Uh, I mean, it's some, something you can download off of our website. You can also download previous years transformation reports. But one of the things we found in our in our research and our experience with clients throughout the world is that there are five common challenges that organizations struggle with, and it's usually not the technology itself that creates the biggest problems for clients. So in other words, it's usually not the software itself. It's usually not the configuration and the customization of the software, although there are challenges and risks with that. They typically aren't the biggest challenges that organizations face. Instead, what we often find or what we more commonly find is that organizations struggle with things like data migration. That's the number five most common challenge that project teams and organizations have stated after the fact. Uh, clarity of business processes is next in terms of making sure that there's clarity on what the business processes are going to be and what that future state is going to be. Um, and then difficulty managing or addressing deficiencies with the system integrator. That's the number three most common thing that challenges struggle with or that organizations struggle with. Um, so ensuring that they um, aren't just completely outsourcing and passing the responsibility for the transformation over to the system integrator. That, that's a common challenge that organizations have. Um, number two, which is probably arguably most important to today's conversation is transformation misalignment with strategic objectives. So in other words, we have a transformation that maybe on paper looks fine, but that transformation is not aligned and does not support or does not enable the bigger picture strategic goals and objectives. And that's a big part of what we're gonna talk about today is how do we get that alignment? How do we create a framework and how do we deploy a framework that allows us to get to gather that alignment or to gain that clarity into what our strategic goals and objectives and what our digital strategy to support it might be. And then finally, the number one challenge that organizations face is organizational change management in the people part of the transformation. So I have yet to meet a client or an organization or a project team that tells me that the change management piece was um, easy or that it was as as planned or that it was, um, you know, that it was easier than they thought. I've yet to meet that client that, that says that more often than not, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, organizations find that change management is a lot harder than they think. And part of that begins with overall internal alignment, but there's a lot more to change management. But certainly what we talk about here today is going to be a, a key prerequisite to a, a effective change management strategy is to make sure you have that alignment first and then the other change management activities to support the change initiative will will uh, enable that as well. So one of the other challenges we see, and this is something else we outline in our 2023 digital transformation report, is that there are more often than not disruptions, operational disruptions to organizations that go through a digital transformation. More often than not, these are short-term operational disruptions, but too often they are longer-term disruptions. And what we find is that over time, we found that year over year, 
it's hovered right around the 50% mark. Just over 50% of organizations experience some sort of operational material disruption at the time they go live with new technologies as part of their digital transformation. And the significance of that is that it's not just a, these aren't just minor disruptions like any go live that you would expect where people are a little bit confused or things slow down temporarily until people get used to the new systems and processes. Here we're talking about more massive or more material operational disruptions. Here's where we're talking about people not being able to ship products or not being able to close the books, um, not being able to provide you know, timely financial results. Those are These are fairly material operational disruptions that we're talking about here. And the impact of those disruptions to the organization oftentimes dwarf the initial cost of the implementation. So that's why it's very important to not just look at what your total cost of ownership is from a implementation perspective, in other words, from start of implementation through go live, but the cost after go live is extremely important to make sure you're managing or, or understanding what the impact might be. Because a lot of times organizations make decisions that optimize the initial implementation cost, but they have such severe disruptions to their operations that the overall cost ends up being exponentially more than the initial implementation. And that can range anywhere from 50% to three times um, you know, plus 50% to plus three times or 300% what the initial implementation cost is. And so you really have to look at the overall big picture and the overall long-term total cost of ownership and value before uh, making some of these decisions. And so the things that most strongly impact operational disruption and create some of these challenges that I mentioned is things related to business processes, change management, uh, lack of internal alignment, and uh, lack of time and effort spent during user acceptance and conference room pilots. Those are four of the biggest reasons why, or the four of the biggest variables that have the biggest impact on whether or not organizations experience this sort of operational disruption. So, you know, these are these four challenges, these, th these four areas that are so important to ensuring that you don't have these problems. Um, these four areas are things that we'll be covering throughout today's workshop. Through, through this week's or through today's uh, digital stratosphere event. Um, so our, our goal here is to share with you uh, some best practices to help mitigate some of these risks that are mentioned here. And then just as a quick side note, some of the services we provide to our clients, um, I didn't mention this in our introduction, but we provide uh, a number of different services to help clients through the entire digital transformation journey. We help them with defining their digital strategy to evaluating and selecting software to the implementation program management quality assurance, as well as providing business process improvement, organizational change and implementation readiness support. So our, our goal and with most of our clients, we're helping them through their entire digital tra transformation life cycles. And we certainly provide a good amount of services in terms of helping project recoveries. So ensuring that, that we help get a client back on track or help them with their project reset to, to sort of right size or to get a, a project back on track and we also help quite a bit with uh, expert witnesses work so our expert witness work as well uh, which is related to lawsuits and litigation as it relates to uh, transformations and we've been expert witnesses for clients throughout the world in their their transformations we try to take the lessons from providing all these services to clients and sort of distill them in in this workshop here today to help you get started on and help you continue with your digital transformation journeys. So we talk about it, the, when we talk about executive alignments and that overall internal strategic, 
strategic alignment that we're trying to gain, it's first important to look at our overarching digital strategy. So understand what, um, what it is we're trying to accomplish, what it is we are today and where we're headed in the future. And we typically do that in the context of five major work streams supported by a sixth one focused on project quality assurance at the bottom. But when you look at these different work streams, these were sort of the beginning points or the focus areas that we need to start with to help get alignment amongst our executive team on what our digital strategy is as an organization. And again, as I mentioned in one of the previous slides, it is not a matter of simply picking a technology like an ERP system or a human capital or CRM system or even some modern artificial intelligence or machine learning technologies or RPA. Um, it's not a matter of choosing a technology and using that as a silver bullet to implement to improve your business. It's not that simple. What, what organizations tend to do, at least the more successful ones, is they define an overarching digital strategy that aligns with and supports their overarching organizational strategies, goals, and objectives. And the ways they do that is they, they start to unpack their digital strategies and define their digital strategies in the context of these five major work streams that are focused on business process improvement. So looking at current state and migrating to future state, it's also focused on organizational change management which is the people or the human side of change, beginning with an organizational ascent, an organizational assessment and diagnostic and continuing with organizational impact and the overall change strategy to address organizational change. It's also enterprise applications. So looking at what technologies we have today and what technologies we could be using in the future and not only just the technologies we could be using in the next one or two years, but how how does that technology landscape potentially help us evolve and continue our journey in years to come? So it may be that we have a big picture digital strategy that entails a number of different enterprise applications, or we're not going to necessarily implement those all on day one. We're going to have a more phased or sequential approach uh, to deploying some of those, those technologies. So that enterprise application space and, and understanding and aligning on what that means and how technology can support the organization is very important and again it's very important not to fall into the trap of thinking we'll just go to microsoft or sap or oracle or whoever the software vendor is we'll get their latest and greatest product and we'll just go ahead and implement that and that will constitute our digital strategy there's there's a lot more to it there's a lot more options you have technologically and some of these other work streams are even more important than the the technology piece um, in addition to enterprise apps we're looking at solution architecture so we need to understand how systems tie together uh, internally, externally, um, you know, even if you're going with a, a single or a, a core set of technologies, um, you're likely going to have to integrate that technology with other legacy systems or regulatory systems, um, especially if you're operating in multiple countries within Asia Pacific, um, you're certainly going to have different regulatory regimes and requirements that are important to uh, address and that that solution architecture is a way to tie together systems across the landscape. And then finally, business intelligence and analytics is another component that's important to look at, understanding what those reporting requirements are and what that future state uh, is going to be uh, is very important as well. So the, the power of executive alignment is extremely important. So it's a main pillar to digital transformation success, as I mentioned before. And without that executive buy-in and alignment, it's very very likely that any transformation project is going to fail, no matter how well it's executed, 
no matter how great the technology is, even no matter how well you might handle change management and process improvement and all the, the non-technical stuff that I mentioned before that's so important, even if you do that stuff well, if you haven't addressed executive alignment and you don't have executive buy-in and alignment, the project's probably not going to succeed. And I can't even count the number of times that we've had either an expert witness litigation related project and or a project recovery or reset where we had to help a client to get a project back on track. I can't even tell you how many times it had so much to do with executive misalignment. And, and there's been times where we look at projects and say, you know what, with the backdrop that we have here with the lack of internal alignment, it is probably impossible for that organization to succeed. It really is that difficult to lead and manage change if you don't have that clarity and clear vision and direction for your overall strategy. And if you don't have that executive buy-in, that's, that's a, a significant challenge as well. And this whole dynamic trickles down to uh, managers and it's something that should involve managers uh, as we, we get alignment. That's something that can start to trickle down through the organization and it, and it gets the rest of the organization aligned. And it's also the catalyst for successful organizational change strategies as well. Um, an engaged executive sponsor can provide enterprise level support and a feedback loop can address any roadblocks or, or project challenges as well. So the project, the power of executive alignment is very real and it's something that's a important prerequisite to ensuring that you have an effective and a successful digital transformation. So another thing or another way to think about strategic alignment and getting that executive alignment is to think about how we articulate the overall strategy of the organization and how we translate the strategy of the organization into a more meaningful and tangible um, digital strategy. And you can see on the right side of your screen here, a, a sample that I've uh, included a screenshot of, or, or at least a framework of, is really looking at different aspects of our strategy and things we're trying to accomplish as an organization and really starting to map out how those different strategy, strategies, uh, strategies and tactics uh, might align with and support uh, the overall uh, strategic direction in the, in the strategy of the organization. So think of it as almost a translation exercise. Most, most organizations we work with in their heads, they, they have in their heads an understanding of what it is we're trying to accomplish as an organization strategically. Not talking about digital strategy, just as an organization, these are the top five or seven goals and objectives we're trying to accomplish for the next five or 10 years. Um, this is how we're going to grow as a company. This is our strategy long term. Once we understand that, then we start to unpack it and we start to uh, cascade that down into bits and pieces of a digital strategy that align with and support that overall approach. So, for example, if an organization is really trying to fuel more top line revenue growth, let's just say they're a, a more mature, slower growing multinational organization, their goal with their digital transformation and, and just with their overall organizational goals and objectives might be to really jumpstart and kickstart revenue growth by expanding into new markets or expanding into new products. So then we start thinking about, well, what, what sorts of technologies would best enable that? What sort of digital strategy and framework would best support revenue growth? And that looks a lot different than an organization that is they just going through a bunch of merger and acquisition integration. They're trying to go buy a bunch of companies and they want to integrate into a common uh, business platform and operating model. 
those are two very different digital strategies with different uh, goals and objectives and different tactics that will be used from a digital strategy perspective. So we have to define the digital strategy and really translate the digital strategy from what the overarching goals and objectives are as an organization. And the strategic articulation is one way to do that. And it's a visual exercise to help um, start to define at the executive level what those strategies and tactics are. And it's not just the output that's important here. It's not just the output of defining what the goals and objectives of the digital strategy are, but it's also the fact that we're getting aligned as an organization and as a team. We're starting to define things in the same way, with the same language, and we're starting to row in the same direction, and we're starting to get a better understanding of what our digital strategy is and how it best enables and supports our goals and objectives as an organization. We're in the midst of a conversation talking about executive alignment. We're going to continue that conversation after a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 77. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday. We are in the midst of a conversation about executive alignment in digital transformation. So some of the ways that we continue to unpack and get clarity on this whole concept of strategic and executive alignment, um, we typically will host a series of articulation workshops and decision workshops where we start to really define and unpack the strategy as I was talking about on the previous slide, but also make key decisions in terms of what the overall transformation is and what it means to what it means to the the organization. And so what I've included here is is uh, sort of an overview of some of the steps we typically will go through to help clients when they're going through this through this whole this process here of, of getting that that strategic and executive alignment. So um, the first thing we do is that strategic articulation workshop, which is actually meant to provide an input to the previous slide, which was the slide that I just showed you here that gets into the strategic articulation and starts to visualize and starts to translate what some of those goals and objectives are. The second step is we'll then get into more granularity and start to look at key decision uh, criteria workshops. So here's where, where we will um, we will start to make decisions around things as, as uh, complex as business processes uh, or ranging from things like business processes to um, other aspects of a transformation or decisions that need to be made. Things like, um, do we want a standard um, set of business processes that are common across the world, or do we want more of a decentralized, uh, flexible model? And, you know, you think of all these decisions as not just an either or, but 
sort of a a uh, continuum and trying to define where we fall on the continuum in the spectrum of these decisions. So in these examples you see here, you know, some of the decisions are, do we have standard common processes or do we have flexible processes? Do we have, um, and, and by the way, you make those decisions for different functional areas throughout the organization, you might have different answers. Uh, we also start to define, do we want to use vanilla software off the shelf or do we want to customize to meet our needs? Um, that's another uh, challenge that we need to address. Um, do we want to have, um, you know, an, another example would be, do we, do we want to have, um, you know, integrated set of systems or do we want more of a best of breed approach? Those are just examples of where, you know, we have to have alignment on those sorts of major high level strategic parameters or else it's really easy to get misaligned and not agree and not have clarity on where we're headed as an organization. So what we do in these exercises is we will lay these topics of discussion, these decision points on the table, and we'll visually go through an exercise where we start off by, by visually representing um, in red in this example, in these examples here, uh, red is where we are today and green is where we think we want to go in the executive team and even, you know, broader management teams over time as, as we go through iterations of this, we'll start by understanding in red where we think we are today. And you start to look at, you know, where on the continuum we are today versus where we think we want to be in the future. And that's the green dots that you see here. And so really our goal then is to look at two things. One is how well aligned are we on where we are and where we think we're headed. Um, in this case, you can see that we're we're sort of aligned on the red, which is understanding and clarifying the current state, but we're not very aligned on the future state. Those green dots are sort of all over the entire continuum. And so our job is to figure out, well, how do we get that alignment? You know, well, how do we make sure that we cluster those dots closer together and that we're all, you know, in, in, a, in a similar, have a similar view of the world? And this is normal to have different opinions. You want diverse opinions, you want diversity of, of input into the process, but at the end of the day, you want to ensure that you align and you start going in the right direction. And so we we work to align those green dots to somewhere on the dial or somewhere on the spectrum or continuum that best supports the overall project. And there's a series of questions and processes we go through to do that. Um, but that's one of the big challenges or big outputs of this exercise is to understand and have clarity on where are we in terms of all these different decisions we need to make. And this is just a, a very small subset of the questions we have to go through with executives, um, just to give you some examples. The second thing we look at, in addition to making sure that the green and the future state direction is, is uh, clustered together closer, and that we're all viewing the world similarly, is we also look at how big the gap is between the current state in red and the future state in green. The bigger that gap is, or the bigger that change is, that translates into more risk, more time, more resources um, that we need to factor into our overall transformation roadmap. And so that's really you know, part of the value of this, the unintended secondary value of this, is that it also ensures that we have an understanding of the magnitude of change, which will allow us to define a transformation strategy and roadmap that's more aligned with reality and what it is we as an organization are trying to accomplish. And then the third step in this process is we identify the gaps, the risks, and the findings, and that we use this to inform our overall digital strategy and roadmap um, and overall transformation plan. You'll see too, you know, one of the things we use or one of the frameworks we use in the uh, bottom right corner here is a graphic that it's very difficult to read. I, I can't even read it on my screen 
right now uh, this screenshot but what that is is that's a screenshot of 13 different dimensions that we typically assess and evaluate risk with transformation projects beginning with the initial strategy phase all the way through implementation and go live and everything we use this framework to manage risk and to identify and mitigate risk along the way and so that's a, a good way to think about this is to think about how can you bring in the tools and the resources and the outside help to help you frame this in a way that will help you identify and mitigate risk uh, along the way and certainly ultimately get to that point where you have that strategic alignment early on in the project. And then finally, as we get through this, we go through recommendations and alignment plan, and then we repeat the process as necessary. I mentioned before that it's a very iterative process. Um, it's not something where you just have a workshop with some executives, you clarify your overall strategy and you move on. That's what software vendors typically do because typically what they're trying to do is they're just trying to get to know the business well enough to start building software, which is what they're really good at. But what we need to do as an organization is slow down, make sure that we have that clarity, that we've, we've worked through these decisions and that we have uh, alignment on these decisions before we start getting into to build software. And, you know, a good way to think about everything I'm talking about here today is to really think of this all as sort of a phase zero to your to your transformation project. I know it's tempting to want to just jump in and let's just go pick a software. Let's go start deploying software. Um, and again, that's what software vendors do because that's what they're good at. That's how they make money. But in order for you to be successful, you have to think of your overall transformation project, you know, as a, as a long journey. And you're going to set that aside for a second. That's that's coming up. That's coming soon. But in the meantime, we need to do this phase zero where we get this alignment, we get this internal uh, clarity on where it is we're headed, A, so that we can be more effective when we get to the actual transformation, but B, so that we are sure that we have the right transformation plan and roadmap, roadmap to begin with. Because more often than not, we just jump right into an implementation plan and resource plan and, and overall strategy that's not aligned as we're talking about here today and when it's not aligned we don't have a realistic vision of what that implementation really is so then we end up running into problems like our projects get delayed we go over budget people get burned out and stressed out those are the sorts of things that, that we've got to make sure we mitigate and that's part of how this whole phase zero and this whole strategic alignment process which is part of phase zero there's other things that happen within that and that's part of what dean and wayne will talk about later are things like defining your target operating model that's something we'll talk about here after my session is how do we define that target operating model? And we wanted to define that target operating model, the future state in the context of what it is we say we're trying to accomplish strategically as an organization so that we're not just shooting in the dark, that we're at wish I have a clear plan for that. So that's how this all ties together into the grand scheme of things in the sort of phase zero mentality of make sure we have a solid strategy and alignment before we start building and deploying technology. Yeah, and Eric, I think it's a, a good time to just uh, address some of these questions um, real quick before we move on. Um, so we have some some great questions in our questions and answer queue. You can definitely put them there or put them in the chat. Either way, we're monitoring them. Um, so this is an interesting one. Uh, do Does third stage face any discontent from clients when we say something like, I think you might need to revise your broader corporate vision in your company and i'll answer that one absolutely yes <laughs> so um but i'll let eric elaborate on that so so we have some other questions just about executive alignment so if you can just kind of talk to us about 
how as a consultant or as, um, you know, an outside party, how do you have that conversation with your clients in a way that shows legitimacy of that, you know, the business and that you are that trusted advisor? How does that work? Well, I think the first thing is to to resist the temptation to uh, come in and, and say that a client is right or wrong. I mean, our, our job is never to tell a client that they're wrong or they, they don't know what they're doing or that, that they have the, the wrong strategy. Generally, organizations have a pretty clear and effective understanding of what it is they need to accomplish as an organization strategically. So how they're going to grow the company, how they're going to be more profitable, more successful, more effective, all that sort of thing. Sometimes they don't, and obviously we've got to help in those cases and, and help them articulate the overarching strategy. But more often than not, they 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 know what their general strategy is, but where they fail is they don't translate that strategy into something that matches from a transformation perspective. So in other words, they get caught up in the, the allure of a, a hot new technology that they're just going to deploy that's going to solve all their problems and help them achieve all their strategic goals and objectives without really defining, well, how? How is that? How is artificial intelligence, for example? How is artificial intelligence going to help you and align with the overall strategy? And what what's the focus of artificial intelligence? Where are we going to deploy it? That's just one example of how we might mm-hmm. think think that through. But in general, yeah, it's it's uh it's it's more a matter of articulating and translating what they already know to be their corporate goals and objectives into a digital strategy, more so than it is helping them define their their digital their their organizational strategy in the first place. Absolutely. I think that makes a, a lot of sense in in helping them to kind of consume and define their strategic visioning and that alignment process. Um, so keep those questions coming, folks. I will make sure that Eric addresses a lot of them at the end, um, and we'll, we'll move on here to talk more about some granular tactics. Sure. Sounds good. Thank you. So here's here's an example or just a, a sample of a strategic articulation workshop that we do for clients. And this is where we, um, you know, start to define in some more detail what the the overall strategy is. And it's a way that we get to that strategic uh, development and articulation. And to to Kyler's point in the question from the audience around, you know, how do you, how do you deliver that bad news to clients that they don't have a good strategy or that they haven't well, they haven't thought through this completely. Um, It's really not, uh, necessarily, I mean, it's not bad news typically when we're doing this because the good news is we're, we're helping through the process. Now, I'd say where the bad news comes in is if you haven't thought through these things, you haven't started to make some of these decisions, that's where I would suggest you're going to run into problems if you haven't made some of these decisions as an executive team and gone through the iterations and through some of the pain and the messiness of having to require or having to define what some of these decisions are. So this is where we get into defining that strategy, the critical priorities and initiatives, um, some of the key decisions that need to be made so that we have some frameworks and parameters to define a transformation roadmap and strategy that fits our business and what it is we're trying to accomplish and it fits our our, uh, priorities. Um, It's also a way to confirm alignment and accountability and measure success and, and mitigate risks and get to next steps that align with the overall strategy. So this sample agenda is something that we do in this case, this is over a one week process. We we conducted a series of workshops for this client for this particular iteration or phase of the strategic articulation workshop. So the key here is that we want to take those conceptual models that I talked about in the previous slides um, that you see summarized on the right side of the screen. You want to start to translate that into more tactical, actionable 
uh, agenda items within a workshop setting to help get to some of those outputs that will then lead to and provide inputs to other outputs like the digital transformation plan and the overall roadmap and strategy. So I was talking earlier about, you know, some of the examples of decisions we need to make as an organization and decisions that we need to make sure that we're aligned on a team as. So for example, um, and this comes back to the question that, that Kyler uh, brought up from the audience a moment ago, which is how do you, how do you um, ensure that a, a client or an organization has an effective strategy is you want to make sure that you, you have just clarity on the strategy that you're aligned on the strategy and that the different strategic decisions that we have to make, they should be aligned with and support the overarching corporate or organizational goals and objectives. And that's where you have problems is when there's a disconnect. Um, I always tell clients that it's better that you have an aligned and clear strategy that's imperfect than to have a perfect strategy that isn't as well defined or isn't as well understood or that we're not as well aligned on even though it might be a superior strategy, the fact that you're not aligned internally means that I'll take the imperfect strategy where there is alignment. That's generally going to be more successful. That's generally going to give you more tailwinds instead of headwinds. And it's going to allow you to reach that, that third stage of success that we were talking about earlier. And so that begs the question, well, what are these decisions we have to make? I mean, if we, you know, do we have to decide on what software vendor we're going to deploy or do we have to decide on um, you know, the phasing strategy of the software. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is even more fundamental and more basic from a strategic level. Um, but we've got to have that basic foundation in place before we can get to some of those other later decisions that we tend to rush into more often than not. So some of those decisions are things like I mentioned before, standard versus flexible processes. And by the way, some of these decisions are decisions that need to be made repeatedly or be made for different parts of the organization. So for example, your finance group might say, we want very standard processes and we're gonna fall on the left side of that spectrum of standard processes versus flexible processes. But when you get to your customer service or your sales group, you might find that, well, that group is gonna be a little bit more flexible because we need flexibility to adjust to customer needs or um, we, maybe we have a, a very customized product and, and that customization is what makes us different and sets us apart from our competitors. So therefore our production, our, our product lifecycle design, or our production processes might need to be more flexible. Whatever the case may be, we wanna define those decisions for different parts of the business. We also have a system strategy. Do we want a single ERP system? Do we want a best of breed? And by the way, for all these decisions, part of our job is to say, there is no easy answer here. There's always a trade-off. There's always uh, pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses of any one of these decisions. But the key is to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we can rationalize and justify how these decisions support the overarching goals and objectives of the company. And just as importantly, make sure that we're aligned on those decisions. Um, there's also um, another example is the last one on the slide, which is do we want, we as an organization, do we want to go through massive amounts of change? Or are we more risk adverse? Are we more, uh, maybe we're just more of an organization where slower tempo or more incremental tempo makes more sense? Um, how how much change do we really want to take on as an organization? That's a really important question and a really important decision that has to be made because if we don't have alignment on that, we're going to have unrealistic expectations. You're going to have part of the team that thinks that we should be just taking our time and doing things slowly and incrementally. You have other people that think we should be really aggressive. We should just go all in on this transformation now. 
And those are two very different strategies with different roadmaps and tactics to support them. So we need to make sure we have that alignment. There's other things around, you know, what kind of system deployment approach do we take? That may sound a bit technical, but it's still something that we need to define as an organization and have clarity on as an organization. Are we going to take a waterfall approach, an agile approach, some sort of mix of both? Um, you know, how much of our data are we going to bring over? How do we want to change our culture? That's a that's a big, massive undertaking or, or not in terms of time and resources, but just in terms of, you know, the the importance of defining that culture and what we want the culture to be and how much of a change we want it to be. So these are just some examples, some additional examples of decisions that need to be made and what things where we need to get alignment and understanding uh, before we get too far into our transformation. And then when we get to the gaps, risks and findings, typically what we want to do is, um, you know, give a readout of what we found and where we landed on some of these decisions, but also analyze and identify the risks, you know, what are the risks with what we just decided or what we're in the process of deciding? Uh, for example, if we decided that uh, we're leaning very heavily towards a standard uh, model with very vanilla software to support um, the business processes, we want common business processes across the globe. Um, that's fine. That's that's a that might be perfectly aligned with what our overarching strategy is as an organization. But now we need to look at the dark side. What are the risks of doing what we just said we're going to do? Now, we the good news is we've got common vanilla processes with common vanilla technologies to support those processes. Uh, the bad news is now we've just put more pressure on the people side of the equation. And now change management is going to be even a bigger risk than it was before, than it was already. So that doesn't necessarily change our decision, or maybe it does. But even if it doesn't change our decision on where we land on the spectrum of things, now we've got to figure out, okay, what are we going to do from a change perspective to ensure that we're being more comprehensive and that we're addressing these risks that we've now introduced now that we've made these decisions. So there's risk mitigation. That's another really important part of that phase zero uh, part of the transformation to make sure that we understand those risks so that we have a deployment plan to address those risks and mitigate those risks along the way. And I'm going to, I'm going to skip through this and just show you, uh, I'll show you right here, just a, a project approach that we took with a recent client. You can, you know, you could ignore the timelines for now. This is a, you know, more of a mid-size organization that was um, not extremely short, but not extremely long a process either. Larger organizations might take more time to go through this process. Smaller organizations might take less time, but generally this is sort of that process we go through to get that alignment and to use some of these tool sets that we've talked about so far in today's conversation to really leverage these frameworks and to get to the point where we're able to mobilize, we get through the, the workshops to, to start to get that alignment with this GRCO um, and with the PMO and with the overall uh, project team. Uh, we get to the decisions around uh, the different variables that we need decisions on, and then we have recommendations and a roadmap that come out of that to ensure that we have that roadmap uh, that's in alignment. Okay, that executive alignment thing is a very important topic and uh, apologies for the abrupt ending to that session. We actually had a technical issue at the end of it, but that was right at the end when the the uh, we lost the feed. But all the meat, all the important stuff was captured there. Um, some good stuff there in that segment. We're going to unpack a couple of those concepts. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies. 
define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 77. We just had this uh, discussion about executive alignment, or we played you this clip about executive alignment from our Digital Stratosphere Asia Pacific event. What were some of your takeaways from that uh, presentation, Kyler? Yeah, I, I think the the name of it is so important, the power of executive alignment, because uh, I was trying to think, is there something else that could potentially really break down a project besides executive alignment or misalignment? And I think organizational change management rep has the power to do that. But there are very other few things that really have the absolute power to derail a, a project um, in in this sense. Uh, so I think it's, it's something that is such an important consideration and also something that's really tough to measure and continue to measure. You know, you may have the alignment of the executive team at the beginning of the project, but what are some tactics that you can continue to kind of put a pulse on? Are we still good? Are we still, you know, moving towards this? Do I still have the engagement and support from the executive team, specifically if there is shifting in stakeholders? Yeah, there's a few different ways to gather qualitative and quantitative information to get that gauge of whether or not you're aligned. One is going to be uh, the ongoing executive steering committee meetings. I mean, usually in those discussions, you know, because we're usually part of those steering committee meetings with our clients, you start to see and feel and hear where the team is aligned and where it's not. And it, the good news is it allows you to, it sort of brings to the forefront or brings to the spotlight where those misalignments are. And it gives you something you can go tackle and go facilitate the, the mitigation of. Um, there's also, you know, a lot of times we'll do, um, individual stakeholder interviews throughout the implementation just to gauge whether or not we're on the same page and going in the same direction. You're always going to find cases where you're not. I, I think people get a little bit alarmed or panicked when that happens. That's just, yeah. if you're part of a big organization, that just is natural. So the question then is, what do you do about it? Um, it's going to happen. So how do we fix it? Um, and then the other part of it too, is, you know, we do continue to do, uh, especially for longer and more risky and, and more complex transformations, We'll do sort of a workshop setting where we actually visualize on a scale uh, where organizations are. We try to quantify on a scale, I should say, where uh, different stakeholders are as it relates to different decisions and parameters for the transformation. So those are a few different ways we handle that. Interesting. Yeah, that that is so important to continue to understand that. And again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier is having that expert in the room that can help you identify those red flags from previous experience that you might not have knowledge of because this isn't what you do every day, which is totally normal. So uh, such a great event. I really encourage everyone to head over to our website um, on our events tab. You can see the replay for this free event. Uh, we do regional stratospheres, and you can also go to stratosphere2022.com 
to see our Stratosphere event, uh, the bigger three-day event uh, from earlier this year. And uh, we're looking forward to inviting everyone to our 2023 event, uh, which will be here before you know it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's already that time to start planning for it. So, uh, well, good. Well, thanks for that that discussion and um, some takeaways from that that um, presentation. And uh, just to rehash what you said, go to stratosphere2022.com. You can listen to that session again or any of the other sessions we, we've had um, at the Stratosphere events. Um, and uh, hopefully you find some good value in that. And I want to thank the audience for being here today and for asking great questions. Again, if you don't mind, uh, give us a like, give us a review, subscribe to the channel or to the, the podcast, depending on where you're watching or listening. Uh, it really helps us not only get the word out, but also helps with the algorithms to push this content out to more people that are like-minded and interested in this topic. So I appreciate any help you have there. Um, thank you, Kyler, for being here today and uh, hope you all have a great week and we'll see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Mm -hmm.